Sup, Freaks? It's your boy Marty here to intro this rip of TFTC. Sat back down with our good friend Matthew Mazinxius from Porkopolis, Porkopolis Economics for a quarterly update on the global monetary base. But as always, we drift into broader economic discussion, philosophical discussion. Always a pleasure sitting down with Matthew. This is a good one. Almost two and a half hours. Almost two and a half? Yeah, almost two and a half hours. Good rip. Enjoy it. It was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. I'm pointing at their offices. They're right down the hall from me here at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas. Um, but Unchained's going to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. If you're holding Bitcoin on an exchange, it's a single point of failure. That exchange can get rug pulled. They can rug pull you. Um, they can get the government coming say, hey, don't let this person move their Bitcoin. Uh, another single point of failure is holding your Bitcoin in a single SIG wallet. Uh, if you lose your wallet, your backup, your shit out of luck, single point of failure. Drain the exchanges. Make sure that you have a secure setup for your Bitcoin. Unchained has their two or three multi-sig vault in which you hold two keys. Unchained holds one. If you have control of your two keys, you always have the ability to move your Bitcoin, even if Unchained gets wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, they will teach you how to recover your Bitcoin with your two keys without their help. But if you're ever in a pinch, you only have one key. They have uh, their key, which can be the second in a two or three multi-sig quorum to move your Bitcoin. Uh, reach out to their white glove concierge service to get set up. If you're a high net worth individual, if you're a business that has a sizable Bitcoin treasury, don't take security lightly. Join the team at Unchained to make sure that you eliminate those single points of failure. They also have a lending desk, an IRA product. Uh, you can move your Bitcoin into an IRA with keys that you control as well. Go check out all this at unchained.com. If you have the ability to put in a promo code, use the code TFTC. You'll get $50 off the whiteboard concierge. The whiteboard, it's a white glove concierge service. It's like we're not the whiteboarding here. They're putting on the white glove. And they're saying, here, let us take you to the secure land. Unchained.com slash concierge. Check out that service. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Come tomorrow. I believe it's tomorrow. It's either tomorrow or next week. Um, it's not going to be Slush Pool anymore. It's going to be Brains Pool. Brains is the team behind Slush Pool. They've been running it for some time now. Slush, uh, formerly Slush, now Brains Pool is the oldest mining pool in uh, Bitcoin's history. It's been around for over a decade now, which is incredible to believe, uh, incredible to see. They have this Bitcoin mining handbook, which I wrote the forward to. Uh, important uh, thing to to say with the transition from slush pool to brains pool, nothing is changing. All the historical blocks will be the same. You don't have to do anything at the pool level. You're good to go. It's just a simple name change. They have their Brains OS Plus firmware, which allows you to stack more sats with your hash. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're an idiot uh, because you're leaving sats on the table and only idiots leave sats on the table. So um, idiot-proof your mining operation if you have ASICs that are compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware. Download it, stack more sats, elongate the life of your ASICs. Just be smart. Don't be an idiot. Go to brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at HODL HODL. HODL HODL is here to bring you a lending platform that's no KYC, no AML. It's peer-to-peer, -peer, and they have low rates. The, the lending rates on HODL HODL are 
relatively low right now if you go look at competitors as well. So if you're looking for um, a good rate uh, and you need liquidity and you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, uh, you go to lend.hodlhodl.com. And what you do is you find a peer that is looking to lend Bitcoin. You put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig escrow. You hold one key. The counterparty in your loan holds another key. And hodl hodl holds the third key. Uh, you don't have control of your Bitcoin in that uh, quorum because obviously you don't have two of the three keys. However, since you do have one key, you have visibility into the loan. So you know that uh, while you're paying your loan back, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day if you do that because you have visibility into the two or three multi-sig escrow wallet. Uh, if you're looking to get yield on stable coins, this is what happens. You put Bitcoin up. Uh, as collateral, if you're a borrower and you get stable coins in return that you can then go spend, if you have stable coins like uh, liquid tether and you're looking to get yield on that, you uh, put them up in this peer-to-peer -peer marketplace to be lent out with an interest rate that you attach to it. And then you can uh, get your your capital plus interest back again using Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to make this happen. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com to check this out. This trip is also brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here to take care of all of your mining needs, whether you're an at-home miner, uh, somebody who's a hobbyist miner using natural gas like myself, or um, a large utility provider or Upstream oil and gas operator. Up, Upstream is here to build the tools that you need for an at-home miner. They have their black boxes, uh, which allow you to plug uh, a black box in to your house so that you can mine at home and you put the miners in the black box, you shut the door and it doesn't make uh, very loud noises like ASICs and open air do. It also controls the heat. And so you can stack sats, non-KYC AML sats from the comfort of your own home. Uh, they're selling bundles. If you use the code freaks, uh, well, for the black box only, if you use the code freaks, you're going to get 5% off the black box. But if you want to get a bundle, uh, you can buy black box and upstream will also acquire ASICs for you that you can purchase via upstream. Um, go to shop.upstreamdata.ca to check that out. Use the code freaks to get 5% off the black box. And then if you're on the more industrial side of things, they have their, their, uh, their, why can't I think of this? Their hash huts, uh, 50 kilowatt, 180 kilowatt, 900 kilowatt. Um, I have a 50 kilowatt hash hut that I've been using uh, flawlessly for almost a year now. Only time I ever have to shut it down is when I need to change the oil in the generator. I've had, uh, outside of the oil changes in the generator, it's been 100% uptime. I'm extremely happy with the hash hut. So go to upstreamdata.ca, tell them that TFTC sent you. If you do decide to purchase uh, a hash hut, uh, the team is going to take care of you. They're getting you generators, data centers, miners, and then they're going to help you get set up. Makes it easy. Let Upstream do the hard lifting for you. Last but not least, this rep was also brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here um, to really you know, to change the healthcare game. All right, and health insurance is traditionally opaque. Uh, you typically get a bad service from the hospital providers, and everything tends to be more expensive uh, than you think it would be even if you have insurance. Uh, CrowdHealth is here to change that model. It's not health insurance, uh, but what it is is a different way to approach healthcare. Me and my family are using CrowdHealth, and what we do is we pay a monthly fee that goes into uh, a health service account, a bank account that we control, and we build up um, our, our, basically our account month in and month out. And then on top of that, uh, a portion of our monthly payment is getting uh, 
put into Bitcoin as well. So we have cash, uh, US dollars and cash Bitcoin uh, sitting in two separate accounts that are gaining value. And if we ever have a medical need, we pay the first $500 of our medical expense and then it goes out to the crowd health community uh, and we crowdsource our, our healthcare costs. Uh, not only is that a new model, not only doing are they doing that on the um, funding of your healthcare, but uh, also the crowd health team, you're going to get a dedicated um, health advisor or health advocate, excuse me, that is going to work on your behalf and you're going to be with them throughout the duration of your time uh, as you're using crowd health. And then they're going to go and negotiate with you for you uh, with the, the healthcare providers that you're interacting with, which the insurance companies are terrible at doing. They don't really care about getting you the lowest price the typical health insurance industry isn't crowd health is they want to negotiate prices down. It's good for you. It's good for the doctors. The doctors get paid quicker. Uh, and if you're really into Bitcoin for the sovereignty and you like having control of more control over your wealth, crowd health makes a lot of sense for you too, because it gives you more control over your healthcare. You get more options. Uh, you get more visibility into what's going on and you, and you have people that are advocating for you. Um, so go to joincrowdhealthcom slash TFTC, uh, the first thousand signups for the Bitcoin community are going to get $99 a month per person for the first six months. It's a really good deal. So go check it out. Join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Enjoy this rip with Matthew. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Yeah, I'm, I need to dry out. I'm drying out right now. <laughs> it's 9.30 in the morning. Matthew asked me if I was drinking alcohol. Now I'm drinking coffee. No shame in that, my friend. Not at no. all. No. It's good to be back. I'm finally settled back in Austin after a summer away and a summer of travel. Back in my king bed of comfort. It's nice in the morning now. The uh, the oldest is coming into bed at like 530, sleeping for an extra hour. He kicked his little brother in the face today. That was, uh, that was a bit of a moment. Oh, you said he was uh, he was crawling out of the crib now, so that's a little bit of a uh, little bit of more action for you. Yeah, these days he'll climb out of the crib, he'll go into the refrigerator, he'll get a yogurt pouch, and then he'll walk into our room and slap it on my chest and say, <laughs> "Open this for me." I love it, man. It's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Very happy for you. Yeah, well, it's coming for you soon, sooner than you think. So uh, pre prepare yourself. <laughs> One is good for now. One is very, very good. <laughs> we just got back from the the Grecian island of uh, Santorini, actually, which was lovely, and uh, did a little did a little swimming. Saw some friends. It was good. Yeah. What's the vibe like in Santorini? Uh, you know, it's just not reality. Uh, you know, people splurging and uh, enjoying their their uh, last bits of summer here and. It's it's not uh, it's not too much of a crazy party island. Actually, it's more of like a couple's place, romantic sunset. Uh, it's beautiful. You've never been? No, never been. Yeah. I would recommend. 
the, all the Grecian islands, as you probably have heard, they have their different, different flares, each one, but Santorini is, uh, one of the more, I think, memorable ones. And uh, I haven't been to that memorable one. We've been to Rhodes and Santorini, but, uh, it's, we've been back a few times. There's a direct flight here from, from the Baltics to, uh, to Santorini. So that's always nice. Yeah, I'm not well traveled in that part of the world. I've been to Spain, France, and Latvia. It's it's the only. I mean, and if you count my connecting flights in Norway and Sweden, I've got those stamps in my passport. But I need to expand my travel over in that well, area of the world. It was great to see you in the Baltics, my friend. It's absolutely fantastic. How did you like it? I loved it. Uh, it was even better than the first time I went in 2018. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. when we met the first time. Yeah, I mean. Shout out to the Hoddle Hoddle team, Max, Anna, and crew. That's, I think, the most high-signal conference in the world right now. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great little conference. Absolutely high-signal. Good people. Good fun. Uh, we had some good convos, and I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed seeing you there. I enjoyed seeing your... Uh, you know, chatting with you at the, at the bars and then, you know, your Irish goodbyes, seeing you the next morning. You got Irish goodbyes when you're, when you're jet lagged <laughs> and the, uh, the prospect of getting back to the U S and having your two children thrust into your arms and your wife saying, Hey, I'm going on a trip for a few days now because you've been traveling for so much. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to miss, miss those flights, but, uh, no. it was, uh, it was fun. Oh, that's something you wanted to touch on was the uh, the last panel of the conference. I was up there with Giacomo, Zuko, Peter Todd, Eric Voskuel, Paul Stork, and myself. And you were aggressively texting me while I was moderating the panel on I stage. I loved it. I was, I was very proud of you and happy that you, uh, you got my text into you. Uh, you got my text into the panel there. I, I, uh, I appreciated that. I think uh, it, it was it was a quick reaction from the panelists. We're moving on to different topics, but uh, I thought if you wanted to, we can kick off we can kick off the the base money discussion for this quarter with that because it was it was relevant to what they were discussing. I actually liked a lot of the topics they were talking about in that panel. So if you want to talk about anything else first, it's fine. Yeah, I liked the I, I thought the panel was interesting. What you uh, moderated there. First things first, your mic's getting a little staticky right now. Did you touch something? I. Uh, did not, but um, Are you hearing it on your end? I, no, I sound just fine on my end. You need me to reconnect or something? Let me see. Is it is it coming in on all levels, Logan? We're hearing it on our end, but mm. and we're live now, right? <laughs> yeah. Are you? Well, we're not live. We're gonna pre-record this and then send it out, so it's not like we're on oh, Twitter okay. or YouTube or anything. Well, at least you got that. That at least. But um, are you recording locally? I'm not. I'm not this time. Uh, so it's just sounds staticky. Yeah. I didn't change anything at all. Let me. Uh, you want me to try to? Let me just. Do you want me to, I don't know. I don't know if I reconnect. Yeah, come come out, it's come back an, in, because we can, annoy we you guys for your edits. I'm sorry. Wait, well, let me just let me just yeah, try to reset great. the. You're great now. Audio. You're great now. It's good now. Yeah, it's perfect now. Okay, I can I can also next time if that does happen, I'll try to reset the just the audio connection without logging out fully. But 
yeah. if you keep this, it's going to be very entertaining for your listeners. Yes. Yeah. You know, we, we don't edit much here, so we probably will keep it. But <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that panel was great. And again, that's, again, why I love the conference specifically, because Max will structure uh, a flow of talks that are a bit controversial. And that's what we ended on, controversial topics or unpopular opinions in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I think what you were texting me about is the, the cost to attack the Bitcoin network. And you reference Bitcoin's overall market cap in the grand scheme of the global base money as um, the sort of cost to attack the network. Yeah. Yeah, we can start with that one. I guess it's easiest as it's the thing that I'm most adept at. But um, I... I thought there were some other actually actually interesting parts of that panel. Maybe we can touch on one to hear your thoughts. But uh, regarding the base money stuff and just regarding the political the political risk to Bitcoin, there this is a discussion that happens a lot. It's always happened, and the way Eric phrases it, which I think is pretty pretty correct. I mean, it's uh, you know Satoshi has talked about it in some other ways. I don't know exactly if Eric's model is original to his work, but the way he always talks about it is a, is the, you know, the censorship risk from the state of blocking transactions uh, from miners that aren't basically KYC or allowed by the state. Right. And as long as that risk and censorship uh, grows, there's going to be a cost to Bitcoin transactions that will grow for those that want to get them into the next block. And um, there's a word that he uses a lot and most economists talk about it. And th- there was a few different offshoots of this word on the panel. I'll try to keep it germane to why I was texting you about it. But the word that is used a lot is seniorage, right? And seniorage is basically the definition of uh, the cost that it takes for an issuer of money to print or issue that money versus the face value or the par value of the instrument that they're issuing. So as most people understand, most people can kind of think about, I mean, he was even quoting whatever the official statistics or some statistics he probably heard from the treasury, right? It's like, you know, a half of a cent or some cents on the, on the, on the $5 bill versus how many cents on the hundred dollar bill. That's like an actual printing cost or whatever. But basically, we all know that there's no cost to what the state does when it prints money, right? They just print money. They issue it into the economy. Some of that is physical currency. Some of that is digital currency in the form of the reserves that banks hold with the central bank. Both of them are based money. It's the research we do. We've talked about it every quarter on your show. Um, but the, uh, the difference between the actual cost and the face value is seniorage for the state, right? It's basically free revenue for the state. And as we know that the cost is, it's basically rounds to zero with the fiat world because there is no, uh, there's no gold in the system. There's no workarounds with gold that they have to use uh, these days. So what I was aggressively tweeting you about while they were talking about this, because, you know, they, they, of course, they still kind of argue about it. They were talking about it in the panel, like what's really the cost of the state and how much value does it have? What, how, much is it, how much is it going to really cost to attack Bitcoin? And my tweet or my, my texts to you were just to say, I don't necessarily know the cost where the state will really 
uh, get aggressive on Bitcoin. But I can say that if you look at the value of Bitcoin versus the value of all of the monetary base in the world, which is basically pure seniorage, uh, Bitcoin is a rounding error, which is I have said this many times on my on, on here probably I've said it on you know my uh, my quarterly updates but um, 30 trillion which actually is down to like 28 trillion this quarter because the dollar is just screaming but whatever 28 trillion 30 trillion depending on the value of the dollar itself that's Wittgenstein's ruler right the top 50 currencies measure them all in dollars 30 trillion dollars uh, that's basically zero cost for the state to issue and that's the unamortized total value of money that they've issued basically throughout all time. I mean, that includes the Bank of England, Bank of the Federal Reserve, uh, European Central Banks um, collectively. So it's $30 trillion. And then I, I threw in their gold, like if you want to say something that actually kind of has a cost or should have a cost, uh, it would be their gold holdings. And they hold $2 trillion in gold about 1.1 billion ounces of gold collectively worldwide. So, you know, roughly, if you want to talk about seniorage, 30 trillion minus 2 trillion of gold. So it's 28 trillion. I know that gold has nothing to do with money legally anymore. It's not everybody, you know, should know that since 1971, statutorily, there's no connection between gold and fiat money, but it's still something of value that central banks hold on their balance sheet, presumably for some reason. <laughs> they haven't sold all of it. And most of they're actually buying more now. Uh, notably in certain countries more than others. Uh, it's also possible that the U.S. has sold a lot of its gold to keep the price down, but that's a whole other story. Regardless, what's reported is about $2 trillion equivalent of gold, and they have printed physically and digitally $30 trillion. So that is the definition of seniorage, and I'm pretty, uh, not pretty, I mean, I'm 100% confident in that number, and you don't really hear that often. So, you know, I think Eric said, you know, financial incentive, uh, there's your financial incentive and I agree. And, and, um, so that's kind of just what we can dig into a little bit more, like, cause you can talk about, when you talk about money, like you talk about the fiscal spending, the taxes, the stimulus, all that stuff, the debt the government generates. But then you talk about the monetary policy, which is what the central bank is in charge of. And nobody seems to, uh, want to calculate that global number, which I'm happy that we have we continue to track, but that really is as far as I can tell, as far as you're talking about the, it's not what it's not necessarily what it's going to cost the state to kill bitcoin but that's their that's their free lunch so to speak that's their seniorage right it's 30 trillion dollars you know minus roughly 2 trillion in gold which they have uh, countering that on the balance sheet but everything else buying a government bond buying a corporate asset even buying real estate because you know we've got mortgage backed securities still held by the federal reserve in the amount of like some 2 trillion dollars uh, those assets were purchased costlessly. They were purchased with seniorage. And so when Bitcoin becomes large enough to threaten that seniorage, uh, I don't know when that will be. I'm not sure if anybody knows when that will be, but that's when they will probably start doing these state attacks that Eric's ta Eric talks about, censoring transactions. <laughs> KYC and all miners doing all the rest, but the action, if you want to actually put a number on what represents the seniorage full stop globally to central banks, they, they have about 30 trillion, 20 to 30 trillion, let's say in seniorage versus Bitcoin, which is now sub 500 billion in market cap value. So that, that, that's, that's the numbers that I was just trying to 
to put out there. And I just gave you a long-winded explanation to start the morning for you. So No, I love long-winded explanations. Uh, and your mic started static, getting static again. So will mm-hmm. I respond to that if you try to fix that? Also, mm-hmm. we want to see your beautiful face. So if you can move your mic down a little bit, um, I don't know if that's possible, or move your face to your left. But in the context of this conversation, it's uh, when we talk about the state attacking Bitcoin, you mentioned one way in which they can do it, which is completely KYCing the mining pools and having them KYC their individual miners. That's why it's important to uh, make sure that we have hash rate distributed geographically and hopefully have a material amount of hash rate that is um, not pointing to pools or pointing to dark pools. Uh, but I think the, the crux of the conversation was around uh, the state's ability to 51% attack the network. And that's something we didn't really dive into. And Eric, I mean, Eric responded, like I brought it up, like what is the logistical possibility of the state actually waging a successful 51% attack? Because yes, we can talk about the overall uh, amount of, of monetary base that they have. Like you mentioned, $30 trillion. That is... Um, and that's what they're protecting us, like the the free lunch that they have to attack the network from a monetary perspective. But do they have the ability to acquire the ASICs, acquire the energy, acquire the infrastructure, amass all that hash rate, and then successfully attack the network? And that's where I'm a bit skeptical because you have that cost, that $30 trillion, you have Bitcoin's market cap at whatever it is, $350, $400 billion. Um, right now, but beyond those numbers, you also have the cost of acquiring the energy, acquiring the ASICs, acquiring the infrastructure. And then again, what I always anchor to is like the logistical nightmare of coordinating all of that. And I just find it hard to believe that the state could do that. Yes, they can go to these big warehouse mining um, operations here in the States and elsewhere throughout the world and try to physically confiscate them and coordinate globally between governments, which don't seem to be cooperating too well right now, um, to attack the network. But you know, that sort of discounts the ability of anybody running those operations if they were to see that type of attack coming. Um, if they really cared about Bitcoin, they could just self-sabotage their operations and essentially destroy all their ASICs and let the miners outside of themselves um, sustain the network and let it live another day. Um, that's what I angered. They're like, what is a logistical feasibility? And I brought it up on stage is if the governments were truly worried about Bitcoin, which considering its relative market cap to the global base base money right now uh maybe they're not incentivized and they're not too worried about it um but they did have a china specifically did have a a unique opportunity to attack the network last year when they kicked all the miners out you you think if um they were really smart and um were viewing bitcoin as a threat the chinese communist party would have confiscated the a6 at the border, they would have had 40 to 60% of the hash rate um, with which they could 
used to to attack the network and levy this 51% attack that we're talking about. So, yes, there are these hard numbers that you are digging up and that we're discussing here, but then there's like this intangible uh, coordination that has to happen on the back end as well, which I'm a bit skeptical uh, these governments would be able to to follow through with, but Eric would rightly throw that back in my face, which is uh, never underestimate your enemy. Yeah, if, you're, if your threat model is relying on your enemy's incompetence, it's not a good threat model. Um, I agree with that. And I also agree with your points. Uh, we, can, we can throw out some numbers, though, regarding the ongoing cost, which I think are helpful as well. So that's overall seniorage. That was the point that I wanted to make, right? Was that, uh, that's why I was, you know, was throwing those texts your way was that it's, look, this is what it is. It's 30 trillion. That's what they've issued basically at all time throughout the modern era. Uh, you know, but as we know, the United States government is for sure the largest empire that's ever existed. So you can, you know, that's 20% of the monetary base. And, um, like those are just real numbers. It's the accumulation of all modern money print that has existed uh, throughout, you know, the modern era. But if you talk about, uh, so that's the money side. That's like, that's what fills the gap for governments. Uh, as I said in the other presentation I gave, right? So the central bank exists first for the state, second for the banks. That was a great presentation, um, by the way. If you freaks thank you. haven't watched it yet, go find the live stream. Thank you. The live stream cut off a few things. I watched a little bit later, but I guess they'll put on, they'll put on a more, uh, like solid piece by piece, probably presentation, uh, you know, recordings at some point as well. But uh, yeah, thanks for the, thanks for the shout out. Um, but, but we can look at, at the fiscal side too. And we can only just look at the United States cause I haven't done this worldwide. It's a, it's a clusterfuck of data out there for government fiscal, government fiscal budgets hard enough getting the monetary data. But if you just look at the United States, um, so what the government, so it's like, why, you know, why would the government want to kill Bitcoin, right? If, if, uh, if we had a little bit better society than we have now, what, certainly what Bitcoiners want, right, is that Bitcoin overtakes all fiat money is like the base of the world. And we scale it how we scale it. You know, you probably know it's not my thing to really, I don't really care how you scale it. You can do everything from centralized exchanges to Fetty to the Lightning. It's awesome, I think, do all of it. But um, the... The next important thing probably to look at is that ongoing sort of threat to the government. And so from there, that's the fiscal policy, right? So it's tax and spend. And I was looking at the numbers. I can give you some concrete ones as well. The worst it's ever been was, I like to look at things at trailing 12 month basis always to like just roll it, always look at an annual number. So the year of COVID, right? With all the stimulus, all the positive, this is US only now, this is just US, federal government. Uh, the year of COVID, so between March of 2020 and March of 2021, was uh, you know, year ending March 2021. You uh, took in about $3.5 trillion of tax receipts, which, by the way, just think about that number, $3.5 trillion. Like, there's no company in the world that makes even, you know, I, don't, I don't even know, like $100 billion would be insane. It can't even be that, that, that large. It's a massive number, right? That the U.S. government just takes in from tax receipts a year, $3.5 trillion. Um, they spent about 8.4. So you were 4.9 trillion in deficit 
that year. That was a re- that was the record. It's down now. Now that they're, they're, their tax sheets are actually way up. Uh, as of June 2022, they finished at 4.8 trillion in tax receipts, and they spent 6.8. So that's a deficit of two trillion. And there's deficits, by the way, they add to the national debt. So you could still have a free market, a free society that still has governments. You know, we're not going to get to these anarcho-capitalist city-states anytime soon. But let's just imagine that we could seriously impair the printing press of each government central bank. You can still have a government that runs deficits. They just have to, uh, they just have to fill those deficits by issuing debt to the market, and people got to want to buy that debt. And that's where, of course, the monetary policy comes into play. As I always say, I think I've said it on your show as well. Like the best bid on government debt is from the central bank. Central bank owns about 30% of the government's debt in the United States, about 30%. So 30 cents of every dollar that the central bank is issuing in debt, or sorry, that the treasury, the treasury is issuing in debt is bought by the central bank in some way, shape or form. And it's much higher in some, in Japan, correct? Which Correct. And more, yeah, I I don't actually know off the top of my head, but it might even be like 40%. There, there are, um, I think Switzerland is even higher now. A lot of these countries that have had to pre- Switzerland for odd reasons, it's had to actually devalue its currency because it's getting so strong. But um, these places that have had to do stimulus, print, whatever, and they're mostly modern developed countries. Yeah, it can be up to like 40, upwards of 40%. The U.S. is like 28% at the moment. So 28, 30%, right? And, but if you took that away, if you took that bid away from the central bank to buy that deficit, you know, treasuries would be priced worse. We'd have uh, a more competitive market and, you know, it'd be more difficult on all of us. But uh, you would arguably, of course, have, you know, in the absence of this monopoly of the central bank seniorage, that's just free money that they can print, right? You would have a more uh, competitive government, all the rest. We don't have to get into all this like, theory of, of these things. But just looking at those numbers, right, the fiscal numbers then, if it was that it's worst ever of like almost $5 trillion in deficit, they, add, they added $5 trillion basically to the debt in one year, the COVID year. Uh, now they're adding about $2 trillion. Let's put that in context. Though. Like what was the debt in 2008 before we started QA? Oh, like $10 trillion probably, yeah. not even. Like, uh, I think yeah. it was like 10 to 12 maybe. And so like in, yeah. in one year we added 50% of government debt here in the states that took if we're using the creation of the federal reserve as the benchmark it took 95 years to get to 10 trillion and then we did exactly exactly we 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 did uh i mean it's it's 30 trillion now the debt is 30 trillion so it's gone up uh yeah 200 percent in in 15 years on the eve of the financial crisis it was just under 10 trillion just under 10 trillion dollars so that's pretty wild that during just COVID alone, the United States government pumped in another five. And some of that was bought up by the central bank, which is, is expansion of the monetary base. It's the free money. That's the seniors. It's all the rest, right? Uh, but, you know, you, you can actually sustain that in the market. I'm not arguing to do that. I'm not talking about COVID policy or anything. I'm just saying, you look at those numbers, they're more and more massive each year simply because of the seniors, right? The seniors that Eric talks about and other people talk about. That's the risk to the government. But on an ongoing basis, even that, let's talk about this rounding error again. And this is the more, get back to your point about how, how much would it cost them to really take down Bitcoin. If they're spending 
upwards, let's say, of $8 trillion a year, or now they're spending about $7 trillion. Right now, they're, they're spending. They're earning less in taxes. But they, the federal government of the United States spends on a trailing 12-month basis $7 trillion a year. It's an insanely high number from a fiscal side. Bitcoin's security budget, Bitcoin's revenue plus transaction fees on a trailing 12-month basis is $13 billion. $13 billion. That's if you took every day the block reward plus the transaction fees and just roll it, the price of that day. Like that's, that's another trailing 12-month figure I like to look at. So that's still a rounding error. Bitcoin is a rounding error for the beast that is only the U.S. United States government alone. It's a gnat on the ass of an elephant. <laughs> so it begs the question, right? I mean, um, I, think it's, I think it really is a rounding error. I think these people like Gensler, you know, I mean, just, you know, egomaniacs like did you see by the way that he recommended bitcoin to be under cftc i did i did it was a couple weeks which ago I thought, which i thought was interesting pivot from his side i don't really know but I, I anyway i don't pay attention it's it's just that you get all this i i, I said this in the talk as well just not to go into two different many things but you talk about you hear these things about cbdc's all the media all the news all the hype all the rest it really is a net on the elephant's ass. I mean, there's so much other stuff that they're doing. I'm not saying it's right. I know, I know the ethos of your show. Most of us don't believe that it's right. But Bitcoin is so small still in 2022 compared to what they're doing if you had actually look at the hard numbers. So I don't think, first of all, I don't know how hard it would be to actually attack if, the, if they can spend, you know, if they can just easily spend $8 trillion in one year, right? quote unquote easily. And Bitcoin security budget is 13 billion. I, I don't I don't know. Um, but I'm saying yeah, it's certainly something to think about. They certainly can walk in like China did they, they could walk into every miner that they could find and say, you know, give us your equipment or KYC your transactions or whatever you want to do. Um, I certainly agree with you, though, it's a coordination problem and all the rest. So uh, we're certainly on the radar. And even at the same time of all those statements, Bitcoin is about the 10th largest currency in the world, wildly, because all of the other currencies are so bad. They're such junk compared to, uh, you know, the top 10. And even the top 10 are that great, right? The top four really stand alone, the dollar, euro, yen, and the yuan. So all of that said, uh, yeah, it's still a massive rounding error. Those are the types of things that's really the seniorage. But really, it's just that monetary base, like the real, real uh, unamortized, unamortized number. Because you could still live in a world where, like, I don't know, maybe Bitcoiners get into government. See what's happening in Canada now a little bit. Maybe, maybe you really do get some influence. And um, I'm not, again, I'm not saying I rely on this. Like, this is kind of Peter's point, And Eric was pushing back. Like, you know, if we had, apparently we voted for the dollar, right? Apparently we voted for the euro. Uh, that is precisely why Bitcoin exists. I know that we, I know that obviously we didn't do that. And I think he believes that as well. But that is precisely why Bitcoin exists, because we can't, you know, money is just completely co-opted by the state. We can't, we can't have Apple issuing fiduciary media that we would all trade around like a cash or, or Google or whatever. We have gift cards. Gift cards is about the closest you can do. Amazon gift cards, like it's pretty damn good. But still, even there, you can't, can't really send that around easily. Um, you know, unless someone has an account, they really, really care about being paid back in Amazon gift card. But like that, you know, that, that's, that's the point. That's, that's, that's what they're protecting. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge number on an annual basis. It's a huge number on an unamortized total basis. Um, and Bitcoin's a rounding error in, in both of those. So it's still, it's still certainly like 
you know, it's not without risk for Bitcoiners. Um, yeah. But let's let's dive into <clears throat> this scenario where it isn't a rounding error anymore. Mm-hmm. Is what was our peak? One one point two trillion market cap at that point. Yeah, I don't know the actual peak, but I'll, let me check really quick. Definitely, definitely over a trillion. Yeah, at that point, maybe bigger than a rounding error. Let's say we mm-hmm. <laughs> hypothetically we get to double that, triple that. You get to like the five trillion dollar range. You get to uh, eat up, uh, or not eat up, but um, get almost on par with gold. What's gold at right now? Like twelve trillion, eleven, twelve trillion. Ten. Ten. Yeah. So you get to five trillion. You get to half of gold's market cap. Is that when they begin ringing the alarm bells? And then uh, there's so much. Because there's so many, again, going back to like the intangibles too. And that's the other, like, because all these fiat currencies, the monetary base, that make up the monetary base, which you have been calculating for some time now, we will dive into eventually. Like that, that's, and I think we've discussed this before too, but there's, when it comes to fiat monies, there's two aspects of uh, the feasibility of these things staying reliable into the future you have the mechanical aspect of how many units there are floating throughout the market at a given point in time and then you have the social aspect which is the people who are using these units that are floating around actually having confidence that they're they're good money and that's one thing i wonder particularly considering the state of the world as it stands today on september 13th 2022, September 14th, whatever the date is, is how, I think there's a a big blind spot, not only in Bitcoin, because I think it's a bit contrarian in Bitcoin, this would feed into Eric's um, very good uh, prognosis of never underestimate your enemy. But with that being said, like, it feels like we're in the middle maybe the beginnings of a beginning of a collapse in confidence in these institutions that control these fiat currencies. And if that is the case and confidence continues to wane moving forward, considering the state of energy and food particularly, like does that leave an opportunity for Bitcoin to sort of leapfrog um, these currencies on the social aspect of things where people begin to trust it more than uh, the dollar, the yen, the yuan, the euro. I absolutely think it does. Absolutely. And I mean, like the, again, just to try to keep it with the, with the hard numbers and like talking about these things. Um, when you talk about the compounding growth effect, which I think both Einstein and Jefferson said it's the eighth wonder of the world. Like it, it can move very, very quick, right? It's an exponential effect. And, you know, like we were just saying, you can have 10 trillion in national debt, sub 8 trillion before Obama comes in even. And Bush, of course, even, I don't know if he doubled it, but he took it way up from there. Uh, And then all of a sudden, here we are, you know, only 15 years later, you got 30 trillion in debt. You know, you have 
eight trillion being pumped out in one year in stimulus spend and spend from like the largest government in the world, right? Uh, markets typically tend to move in these power ways or these exponential ways, where basically that tail event, as Taleb talks about, right, that tail event takes over and things just change very, very rapidly. I think you're going to see that in my part of the world, which you know, we can talk about later if you want, with uh, the quote-unquote second most powerful army in the world, you know, getting North Korean ammunition to try to take over uh, a country here in 2022, um, which, of course, the Baltics and Poland, where I am right now, were like the most uh, vociferous and, and angry uh, defenders of Ukrainian freedom at this point because it's just it's just governments are just losing their mind and Russia's a kleptocratic government anyway. And mind, they still had on and off a top 10 currency in the world, the ruble. Uh, even now, I think it might still on paper be, even, even though the ruble's not a freely, floating, a freely floating rate. So that just shows you how, again, top heavy it is with those top four currencies. And yeah, it doesn't have to be in the, um, in the quote unquote, like liberal, the West or the liberal democracies or liberal societies where this stuff needs to take hold. I, of course, would not be like that happy if it's like only being used in these more, uh, what that say, like bad PR countries, right? Where there's like the corporate press in the US can just say, oh, Bitcoin's evil, Bitcoin's bad. You know, we've gone to Silk Road to like degenerate governments and stuff. Of course, Bitcoin's being used because, precisely because those countries are horrible and bad and people need to transact and survive and, uh, take care of their families and all the rest. So, like you said, like you were starting to say before, there's there's so many issues, all these different vectors. Uh, it's it's going to be, I think, hard to parse through this stuff. But Bitcoin certainly has a toehold that I think uh, is extremely interesting. Obviously, we've never had this as far as a free market money uh, gaining a toehold uh, against fiat currency in the last hundred years. You know, we know what happened with with e gold and all the rest and some centralized institutions that try to compete. Liberty Reserve, yeah. um, even Choms, original uh, E-cash. Cash. Yeah. yeah. They, all got, they all got cucked. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Like, uh, particularly here in the U.S. right now, like you have, like, again, talking about the, the biggest empire um, that dominates the global economy and the global monetary system like we had president biden earlier this week yesterday and the day the 8.3 percent cpi inflation clip comes in which i know you hate but that's what everybody's anchoring to here in the united states right. everybody seemed a hundred percent confident that it was going to be lower than 8.3 percent and it came in at 8.3 markets tanked and while that's going on, you have Joe Biden probably not even realize what's going on as he's speaking, um, saying that we're taking care of inflation, it's going down, and um, it's just not materializing. He's draining the SPR, um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It seems like that will be officially tapped out at some point next month, <laughs> at which point, see, that's what I like, again, anchoring to the social side of things. Like That's what I worry about this winter. That's what... Uh, I know we had one conversation in Riga at least about what this winter is going to be like in that part of the world. And there's this weird, maybe it's a cognitive dissonance here in the United States where 
I think a lot of people here think the energy crisis specifically is isolated to to Europe um, because of the um, natural gas situation and the inability for Germany specifically to get natural gas from Russia right now. And then yep. it feels like, I could be wrong, but it feels like over here in the United States, everybody's like, yeah, it's just like not a problem over there. It's just a problem over there. It's not a problem here. But people are severely discounting the fact that gas prices here in the United States are artificially being driven lower by the draining of the strategic petroleum reserve. That'll end uh, sometime around the middle of next month by uh, most recent estimates, at which point you're, you're not going to have that flood of supply hitting the market. And at the same time, we're getting deeper into fall, getting closer to Thanksgiving and Christmas, which are heavy traveling seasons. And I think we could just see like right now, gas prices here in Texas are under $3 a gallon, um, which was not which the case insane, earlier. insane, man. That's yeah. so low. Yeah. You guys don't even know. Yeah. But no, I I know you're uh, you're going on a different point. Well, like you can see like the, the SPR gets drained and then you just like slingshot up after that because yeah. the the supply shock is going to be so great and we're embarking on these idiotic energy policies where the Biden administration isn't uh issuing new permits to go drill and even if they were to issue new permits uh because of the demonization of oil and gas, the drilling teams um, have the drilling companies have not reinvested in their equipment. And so you have a scarcity of actual drilling equipment, even if you did want to go drill for this stuff. And so what do you, what are your thoughts? I guess we can take this. Um, what are your thoughts about the like meme here in the United States that uh, inflation's, uh, gonna, gonna taper significantly the demand destruction that the fed has been trying to induce, will be successful, will bring down um, inflation as we move throughout the year. Uh, but it just seems like on the supply side, particularly of energy, and then energy is key input in food, and it's moving to food yep. as well, but that's simply not going to be the case. No, I don't think it's going to be the case at all. I think for sure Europe's going to lead that as record inflation, and the euro is showing that with its weakness. But um, the... <sighs> Again, you you said it. I don't really like looking at CPI and everything, but uh, the amount of stimulus that continu is continuing to be put in the system, the amount of uh, lack of supply for energy that is in the system, which is a fault of all Western governments. As we know, government policy usually mucks things up that the free market could do better on its own. Um, Again, I'm not particularly aware on all of the inputs as you are much better as far as the U.S. side. But again, back to Europe, which I know is not fully your point. Like, again, I'm, I'm not saying that the U.S. is going to be so much better. But, um, you know, ger Germany, like just decommissioning their nuclear reactors 10 years ago after Fukushima. France not recommissioning theirs. They got like, I don't know how many. We were talking, I was talking with Michelle uh, uh, in Riga about this. I mean, there's just like everything should be full go for energy and it should have been for a long time. And this is just, you know, this is the lobby. This is the, this is the corporate press. This is everybody trying to say, we need to do a particular thing because certain influencers at the top say that we should do it. Just not how the free market would work, right? Free market would always find 
the uh, the lowest cost and the uh, the best price and the best quality that they could could offer. So um, I think that we are finding some political impetus to change things, particularly because of uh, just the blatant. Uh, again, I know there's a lot of Texas libertarians that disagree with me, but like over here, you have a blatant violation of a country's sovereignty, and that is showing Western governments, hey, actually, you fucked up, that you're so reliant on this animal of a kleptocratic dictatorship uh, to supply you with 40% of your gas, Germany, and all the rest. So that is going to be a positive on in the future. But again, pendulum swing, right? So they're not going to get it right in the future. They're still going to spend too much more, even if they rebalance the energy mix next year to even some more carbon, right? <laughs> it's still, they're not going to get it right. They're still going to mess it up. They're still going to spend too much that, you know, at least $2 trillion a year in the United States case, tax, and, tax versus spend, deficit, um, or spend versus tax, I should say, um, $2 trillion for, uh, shortfall. All these things obviously continue, in my mind, to uh, bode well for Bitcoin. And that's another thing I showed in the presentation. Like, look, just look at the units, right? Oil, uh, interestingly, over the last 15 years, as far as consumption goes, is pretty lockstep with population growth. Right? It grows about 20% in the last 15 years, both population and oil. Uh, you know, and GDP is up 80%, but that's... Again, Wittgenstein's ruler, you got all these different currencies, you got inflation there that you got to back out, price inflation that is. Um, you know, was it really 80% growth? You got the dollar's dominance in that exchange rate and all the rest. And then the base money stock is up 650%. <laughs> so, like, those are the things that bode very, very well for Bitcoin. But, uh, but again, and that, I said that in the presentation regarding the gold part, like, we thought that we would have won the game. 10 years in the stagflation of the seventies. I've said this a lot as well, probably in your show. Like we all thought we would have won in 1980 if we were gold bugs and we didn't, they stepped in and Paul Volcker took rates to 20% and you know, the rest of this history, we're still in this 40 year bond bull market. Um, cause you just, you just keep going closer and closer to zero, uh, as far as the 10 year, uh, treasury and stuff goes. And of course, yeah, they're trying to now to, prick the inflation bubble. Maybe this will be the one where they have to, um, they have to really, really continue to raise rates. I know that they're doing that right now, but like they have to be really, really hawkish. Um, I don't think they'll be able to succeed though. There's just shown that, uh, again, even in the, what was supposed to be the start of the great moderation. Uh, yeah, it didn't bode well for gold over the next 20 years, but over the 20 years after that, gold still is up, you know, it was 35 bucks an ounce back in 1971. Now it's 1800 bucks. And yeah, that's not like a fantastic compound growth rate, but that's also, if you look at that year on year, that's, um, that's well high, higher than population growth. That's well higher than probably even GDP growth. I think it's probably at least six, 7% compounded per year. Uh, the, you know, we have very difficult measures to really, really act, uh, you know, smooth out. And it's, it's just very difficult to measure price inflation other than looking at a few of these certain units. And um, I don't know, I just, I think that that's what's so beautiful about Bitcoin is that, is that it really, it's just an escape hatch to all that. Uh, so again, I, I didn't, I, maybe I dodged your question a little bit about the next 12 months specifically regarding the US because I'm not following that as much. But in Europe, it's gonna be very, very tough. We are going to rebalance, but it's certainly the pendulum will probably swing in some crazy way. And there's going to be a lot of corruption from that. And 
more fallout and probably some, you know, SJW activists come in and try to do more Greta Thunberg. It's even matter. You know, it's just, it's not going to change, right? It's not going to change the, the main picture of why Bitcoin is helpful for this situation and fiat money printing is harmful. Yeah. Now we're going back to like interest rates and Powell and company trying to be modern day Volkers. <laughs> I think I saw um, some estimate. I think Wall Street's uh, pricing in the probability of a four and a half percent federal funds rate by March, yeah. 2023 at like 70% or something like that, which is insane, which gets to another question with, and you had the ECB come out last month and they raised rates by 50 bips yeah. over there like that. So that's sort of the rock and the hard place. These central banks find themselves in is like, yes, they can try to be Volcker and they can try to tame inflation by raising rates to to certain points but at some point due to all the debt and the and credit in the system push comes to shove and you have a, a credit crisis so i think that's the question is where does that credit crisis start and what is the inflation rate at that point like so that, again going back to like the social aspect like we could find ourselves in a situation this winter january february 2023, where the energy problems and solved, the food problems beginning to, to rear its head is something that's just as bad as the energy problem. You know, the Fed at that point, probably around three and a half to 4%, maybe the ECP bumps up and is above between one and 2% over there. And uh, there's going to be something gone, going to break in the credit markets at that point, I would have to imagine. And if inflation's still high, there is a credit crisis that is beginning to rear its head and they're forced to turn the printers back on. Like, what the fuck does that do? Yeah. And they already are at that record high as far as the central bank, as far as the U.S. goes and the others, as, as we just talked about, are probably even higher. We have 28% of the whole government debt is owned by the central bank. It means that seniorage money that they printed to buy that government debt, it's out in the society. If you're going to increase that more, I mean, again, you were in an invisible place. We just, but it's never, there's no ratio that compares to that ever. Uh, it's never like, we, will central banks take over 50% of the economy, 60%? You know, what's, what's going to be that number where, or the debt, I should say, which is like the government economy, right? Uh, are they going to, you know, what's, what's going to be that limit that's going to trigger some default or some reset? And as you said, that's, that's precisely what, triggered the crisis in 2008 was rising uh interest rates were at all-time lows the maestro as new york times tom woods likes to say as well the new york times called alan greenspan the maestro for getting out of the dot-com september 11th crisis lowering rates to all-time lows like one percent in the early 2000s they raised them both the fed and the ecb precisely uh before the financial crisis debt becomes too expensive you can't pay your interest payments um, I mean, we, we've already seen just insane, I'm sure you've seen it, the Twitter screenshots of like the estimates of what the annual electricity bill is going to be for some of these businesses in the UK. It's just like, it's close your doors bad. I mean, there's no way that they can't, uh, if they're going to have to deal with Russia in this rock and hard place situation that they themselves, uh, they put themselves in, Right. The, the only thing that they're going to be able to do is to subsidize and to print 
and to save all of these businesses, which again, it's not going to be good for their currency. And I hate to sound like a doom and glimmer there because really I'm not. I mean, I, I believe that the market will work itself out here and generally liberal societies will improve. Um, you know, it's just, it's very hard when you look at these like very, very broad, broad macro things. And it's hard to not be depressed with the picture because <laughs> it's so insane. The numbers are just so insane. I was looking, by the way, uh, uh, I reminded myself because I forgot the latest figures. So Apple in 2021 was 365 billion in revenue and Exxon was under 300 billion. So some of the biggest companies, 285 billion. The federal government is now taking in $5 trillion in tax receipts, right? Now I'm not saying that all that money is like completely malinvested. Most of it is. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean it, when you compare it, it to like the products that Apple and Exxon are, are putting out there, uh, right. it's right. nowhere near. Right. You so don't, you you're not getting this. quality for that, that spend. <laughs> no, you're not. And what is that discount factor, right? To the actual value of the product, uh, you know, the roads, whatever, hospital maintenance, all this nonsense that always tell that we have to have a state for these things. But anyway, uh, point being, it's insane. It is at an insane level that we just could never imagine even, like I said, 15 years ago, this is that seniorage that they want to protect. They could still do these things in a free market. You could have a revaluation of the debt, discount government debt, uh, get to a free market, let Bitcoin as base money take over and let uh, the free market value, you know, let interest rates go up, let people default, let things get reset. And let's just say that, you know, at some point, no one's gonna no one's gonna buy government debt like the levels that central banks have been buying it at in the free market. I think that's wishful thinking, at least now in twenty twenty at least for this cycle, certainly for the next cycle. But I think we're looking at the next ten years. Um with like the digitization that will continue to come. Uh I don't see how Bitcoin doesn't succeed really. And again, I I I like you, I don't want to be the person that says you know, we're just going to underestimate our enemy that they can't spend to kill Bitcoin. Uh, but there's just, there's no other, there's no other alternative. There's no other escape hatch. Well, I mean, I don't want to get, get called a fed post or anything, but like you have to think in their minds, these uh, at the top levels of these governments and central banks, I mean, they have to know. Like that they're fucked. And so again, going back to the social aspect, like maybe, I mean, for their sake, for their heads, like, I mean, you have, I mean, in France, I saw a clip of their finance minister was getting heckled um, or Italy. It might've been, I forget. It was one of those countries was getting like, like violently yeah. heckled to the point where like he was, his safety was in danger. And at some point, if any, logical human is sitting there and just like looking at the numbers and looking at the math of having to pay back all, all this debt that's been accrued and at some point it's gonna be like, all right, it's literally impossible. And I, I don't discount there. I, I wouldn't discount there being a scenario in the future where just due to the fact that these people want to self-preserve, they go, all right, yeah, we fucked up. Like if you guys want to adopt Bitcoin, go for it and try to rebuild from there. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of alternatives there. There's a lot of, uh, 
I just said there's no alternative uh, Bitcoin Tina, right? But the, um, I, I mean that there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of vectors here that are coming at uh, the situation that could be different outcomes. So like, you know, unfortunately we had very draconian things with COVID, Canadian truckers, Dutch farmers, you know, these things that just sort of they come in, they go out, more excuse, the Overton window gets pushed along and, you know, it's difficult, right? Those are the very, very negative vectors. Now, I actually think regarding, again, we, we can go deep philosophical if you want on this. I know I keep coming back to the war here and, and I'm telling this much more than you are. But if you look at all of the fuck-ups and the corruption that has happened with Western governments in connection with Kremlin, which is an absolute gas station petrol state, um, you know, they, they don't have private property rights. They don't have liberal democracy. And again, I know probably a lot of listeners vomit at the word democracy, even on your show, right? If you want to be like, if you want to go at full ANCAP, if you want to go at full, um, you know, just, just, just thinking full, deep philosophical conversation, we can have those conversations. I'm talking about like in 2022, right? I think that a very positive thing that's happening right now is at least people realize that if their governments aren't looking out for them regarding uh, defense and energy, they're going to have to look out for themselves. And governments will have to do that repenting at some, at some point here, at least in Europe. I'm not sure about in the U.S., but at least in Europe. And that is a very, very good thing on top of the fact that we're fighting now for a free Ukraine. And, you know, it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not the U.S. or NATO that's, like, coming in there with troops. It's just sending weapons, which is not illegal. You know, occupying a country is illegal. Sending weapons is not illegal. And these type of things are actually going to, you know, you got volunteers, the Foreign Legion, all that stuff. It's very, very good for us. Like, because this is, you know, I said this on Peter McCormick's show over, the, over uh, the summer. Like, this is what we lost 100 years ago. We lost this to, I'll, I'll bring this all back around what I was saying with the, with the other negative things that are happening with COVID and, and everything else. But like, look at the big picture. Like 100 years ago, we just took a massive turn for the worst as far as like the Western world goes, like liberal world. Uh, like the Bolsheviks came in, everybody uh, thought they'd, all right, let's just like give it a go in Eastern Europe. And then the ones that wanted to get out, like Poland, Baltics, sorry, do you want to say something? I said, didn't we have like JP Morgan financing the Bolsheviks too over here? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it was absolutely corrupt from the top. I mean, it's just like... Uh, in all war, right, you get people that are uh, skimming on both sides, right? hedging, financing on both sides. Um, so that's horrible. The corruption is bad. And so that, that's, again, is a negative vector, just like COVID, just like the Canadian truckers. So this is a hard thing, again, for like someone maybe sitting in Oklahoma, not Texas, let's say, on your show listening. <laughs> I think we're far away from Ukraine. We don't want to help these people. Like they got into this themselves, all the rest. Um, there, there is at least a spark of like liberty, which should not, you go back to defense, like national defense and stuff. You know, that, that's an interesting discussion as well. Like David Friedman called it the hard problem and it is a hard problem. Um, we don't have those private defense contracts, private defense agencies, private insurance, all the rest that can rectify when your, you know, private city state monarch encroaches upon your rights. If we ever get to that, whatever, if that's, if that's what you think is the, is the end ideal. Um, there's no start date. There's no end date to this stuff is my point. 
and we had particularly in my uh neck of the woods right we had we're as neutral as sweden small countries used to be big in case of lithuania and poland uh if that means anything being a large state but we used to be big throughout like the whole medieval times then we weren't austrians russians carved us up whatever and then uh you get to this like world war ii state where basically the nazis uh, start first the soviets come in and take you over then the nazis come take you over then the soviets come back take you over the only countries uh that recognize that didn't recognize this occupation were the united states i shouldn't say the only countries all of the western liberal countries like france uk uh i don't know about if spain did but italy did you had like the you had uh the flags of these independent countries flying during the Soviet Union, not recognizing the occupation of the Soviet Union, but still it wasn't enough. We still fell behind for, you know, 70 years. And really for 100 years, we just let this mad Bolshevik experiment run wild. And I really think that this time, you know, again, if you were a gold bug in 1980, you thought that like we really were going to see the 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 light of day the free market you know gold was depegged from governments gold was flying 850 bucks an ounce uh, it was really really going to be great didn't happen so i'm not saying it's going to happen this time necessarily with bitcoin but bitcoin just gives us that extra toehold that extra rung on the ladder to hold on to something where we have private property if we have to flee we can flee then all the rest like i still think you're going to have to have people rally in different different governments for free societies because we just didn't have that a hundred years ago i mean we did we just didn't have it we had uh particularly 70 you know 70 80 years ago with world war ii we just had we let the iron curtain fall down we're seeing it again with china like uh, again i have nothing nothing bad to say about the chinese people i'm talking about the chinese communist party this is the same exact story i mean it's it's already happened with hong kong all those all those student dissidents are in jail in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's done, right? But uh, Taiwan is next. You know, what's going to be next after that? I don't know. Seoul, are they going to go? Like, hey, you just, we're going to let them go down. You know, th- th- those are, those are going to be the difficult questions. And I think they're actually positive rallying cries. If you can just go from the, the aspect of like private property, I think that's like a really, really, um, important thing to to rally around and, and that's just not happening in ukraine right now and like i'm following all these views with like this counteroffensive now that's happening in ukraine like people are just coming out in the streets and just so unbelievably tearfully joyous that they have been rescued it's literally world war ii stuff that they have been rescued from these people that are deporting castrating raping pillaging sending washers back through belarus these people have no they don't have paved roads some of these people in Russia, like it's, it's medieval stuff that's happening there. So from that side, I think it's very, very positive. I think people will be reminded how important liberty is. Um, but again, like you said, there's going to be bad people financing things on both sides. The Schroeder, it's called here, there's a word for it, the Schroederization of Europe, where you have, you know, Gerhard Schroeder, you know, this former uh, PM in, uh, in Germany. He's basically, you know, he's basically completely corrupt in bed with Putin and he's not He's not, it's still, the Germans still haven't uh, risen up and, and, and tried to, to stop all those people who are just, just in bed with like literally a murderous, tyrannical government. I know that the U.S. has 
its fair share of bad, <laughs> bad apples, to say the least, with their politicians. <laughs> we got to do the same there. We got to do yeah. the same. I mean, got to do the same. A president and his son. I mean, we're not allowed to talk about. Oh it. yeah, it got that's uh, unbelievable. Completely censored on all the social media platforms and the mainstream obviously didn't cover it but it's did you see sam harris's response to uh oh my god to uh yeah i forget what podcast it was on no it's uh it's those two comedians good guys yeah i'll find it in a sec that was just insane that shows you right there that's like from the horse's mouth of just you know someone who's such a virtue signaling uh do-gooder democrat you know (laughs) I don't you know, care. Even if he has dead bodies in his basement, I don't care. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, it's very obvious. He's, I mean, they've got financial connections in China and Russia, which is like really mentally perplexing considering like the posturing. I mean, I don't, Joe Biden's just a literal puppet. Here they jack him up with some steroids to, to, gloss over his dementia and send him out to say things. He, I mean, yeah. he's not shaking hands with invisible people. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very interesting time to be alive to say the least. And, yeah. But, but I, but just to wrap it up, kind of the broader point I was trying to make is like, yes, it's going to be very, very, it's, it's very unfortunate that we had just all these horrible, horrible encroachments of the government over the last, even just last two years. Right. I mean, let alone, everything that's happened since 9-11. But over just the last two years, it's gotten pretty insane. Uh, I think the corporate press is maybe getting a little bit reflective after COVID, but not too much. Um, didn't that wacko from CNN, he got fired, didn't he? Stelter? Yeah. His name Stel- yeah. A fat that pussy. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we refer to him as on this show. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I loved Russell Brand's uh, uh, impersonations of him. It's pretty funny. It's hard to believe he's only 35. He's like our age. He's 35? He looks, yeah, he looks like he's like 50. Oh, my God. He's on some government-recommended food plan, that's for sure. <laughs> Jesus. 35? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's eating off the, uh, the Ansel Keys food pyramid. He's taking yeah. it to heart. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. But, yeah, so, like, there's always going to be these cross currents. Uh, there's always going to be these like really, really bad vectors that are come, going to come from this. But I have to believe that, like, especially this time, and this is why I'm actually so optimistic about Eastern Europe. Like, you do not know how united we are for freedom over here in light of the Ukraine situation. Like, again, if, if, just to try to, I know we have a large American audience here, and I'm very aware that a lot of you, like, don't, support NATO or whatever. Like I would totally support, you know, Texas seats in the U S all of the rest of, of, uh, new, say non new England, which is like probably still the most European supporting, uh, swath of the United States, seceding from NATO, from the U S whatever, do what you got to do in the U S but actually in here in central and Eastern Europe, like Poland, Baltics, Romania, Bulgaria, Finland, Sweden, like Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And, you know, you want to say that it was NATO encroachment that started this war and, like, Vladimir Putin was like, oh, well, you know, we don't have a problem with Finland joining NATO. It's okay. Like, it shows you that it's not NATO. <laughs> What's the problem? We talked about this on our show. We don't, we don't have to go back and do it again. I think we talked about this last time. But um, it's, it's obvious that the bigger problem here is that there are 
really bad people in the world. And one of those is leading a former large empire, which was marred by a hundred years of Bolshevik bullshit, you know, Marxist ideology. It's one of the things I was reading recently. Ah, uh, oh, what's his name? Magnus. Bill Magnus. You heard of him? No. He's a libertarian uh, scholar, commentator. Now, he writes a lot of articles in different publications, read some of his stuff. He says, very interesting, if you look at the, uh, you look at the footnotes of Marx before the Bolshevik Revo Revolution, and he was like literally a footnote in, in, uh, in history. Like the he, he's looking at footnotes and sources of authors throughout all of like the digitizations of books and stuff. It's actually really, really good, really strong historian, libertarian, uh, academic type. And basically Marx was a complete, which we all actually knew this because we had seen how horrible uh, this ideology had gone in Soviet Union, which is something that libertarians like to forget about and even somehow support Putin, which I just can't even fucking imagine. But uh, Bolshevism and Marxism basically are completely aligned. Marx was like, a nobody in the literary economic world before 1917. And it was the fact that Lenin, Trotsky, all the rest, they got a toehold in this former, you know, they, this rebellious, you know, taking over the old world, uh, czarist empire, that that's where the, the, the sort of the revanchist uh, Marxism uh, really started. There was no real, like, it wasn't like it was practiced in, Western universities, Marxism wasn't like wrote about, thought about, talked about. It was, it was like kind of a cranky idea. And so it's really interesting to think about just that we think that the Soviet Union was founded on like some really noble, thoughtful idea. But if you look at the actual sourcing, the actual footnotes of books and people that were reading and talking about things at times, like Mark, Marx was a very low, low, almost unknown writer <laughs> at that time. So it was literally just because the Soviet Union decided to go for it and adopt these ideas that the that all of a sudden more papers started to be written about Marx. It's like, you know, this vomit reinforcing cycle, right? That all is, okay, we got a big state. We just took it over a blank slate. Let's give it a try. And they literally fucked the world up for 100 years. And my point, you know, where my ancestors came from, where a lot of Americans' ancestors came from, Central and Eastern Europe. And this is what we're doing. We're still dealing with it. So I think from that side, even with all the government encroachment, all of the problems, I think that the fight for liberty here is actually uh, is very, very important. I think it's very sad for what's happening for Ukrainians in particular. Um, but but I, I really do think that uh, that there's something good there that the West or liberal societies can can look toward. Yeah, that's what because <laughs> I agree. I mean, this is. If you zoom out, take a 30,000 foot view and look back a hundred years in history to today, like we're still, still dealing with <laughs> the problems that the Bolsheviks and Marxism wrought in, in your part of the world. And it's crazy to think like, holy shit, we've been dealing with this for a century. And as we move forward, as this uh, liberty movement in Eastern Europe uh, picks up and people become more emboldened over there and are at the point of enough is enough. We're not going back. We're not, uh, because I agree. I mean, Russia, uh, Putin is <laughs> a kleptocratic leader who uh, wants to bring uh, more socialist tendencies to the world. Same with communist Chinese 
party. Like, I don't think, I think we should find a way to not have them succeed. Um, and we should work towards that as vigorously as possible. It's like, how, how do we do that? Like if first, let's just imagine a world in which Liberty wins out in the next decade or two. And we have this massive moment in humanity where we have a retrospective, like, Hey, the last hundred, 120 years, um, has been an anomaly, a smear on human history moving forward. How do we prevent like the, the, the footnote author from taking over again and reinserting these terrible ideas? Cause it's, they're trying to bring it here to the United States. Yeah. I mean, that's what Biden was championing yesterday on stage was the inflation reduction act, which is a complete Orwellian double speak, um, yeah, it, like it's just not going to reduce inflation, and it really was just a Trojan horse for the Green New Deal, which is instituting these socialist, Marxist, um, central planning initiatives, particularly as it pertains to energy um, here in the United States. And so that's, I mean, that's what I worry about is that we've had this silent color revolution happening here in the United States where, um, I mean, Yuri Bezmenov came, uh, a Russian defector and warned us in the eighties, like, Hey, he, yep. they're taking over the university system. They're going it's to totally right. It's a hundred percent right. Yeah. They're going to destroy the nuclear family. They're going to, um, try to take over the education system. They're going to create racial strife and everything he predicted in the eighties has come true. Um, since since that interview he did um and it's i do think here in the united states the the fire of liberty does still ring strong in in many people certainly not everybody and certainly i wouldn't even say a majority of people here but there is that intolerant minority that have that fire of liberty deep down inside of them that will fight to ensure that we do not repeat the mistakes that the Marxists and the Bolsheviks did a hundred years ago, but it's just, yeah, we're caught in this weird inflection point in human history where we're literally in a battle for liberty in the digital age. And, um, maybe that's a good segue. I mean, I know we mentioned it on the last show, but that was a big focal point of your presentation at Riga is the next attempt to attempted land grab in, in the realm of uh, control in the digital age is CBDCs. I know you're adamant that you don't think um, CBDCs are viable just because they cut out the private banks and the commercial banks. Um, and it's just not, it's not going to be feasible from an implementation perspective. Um, but it's funny, like we have a lot of the, the well-respected macro talking heads here in the United States. Like I, I tweeted this out uh, last week. Uh, I was listening to the Macro Voices podcast with Brent Johnson for Santiago Capital, <laughs> both of who have been um, pretty big Bitcoin naysayers over the years. And the conversation was really good up until literally the last two minutes where they, they talked about Brent's dollar milkshake theory, which I'd uh, like to get your thoughts on. Um, just in and of itself, but basically came to the conclusion over the course of an hour-long conversation that, like, hey, this is not how monetary systems should be run. Like, having all these different central bankers around the world manipulate 
policy and interest rates and monetary supply is creating these massive negative externalities from mis misallocation of capital. And they didn't say it explicitly, but in a roundabout way, they said, hey, like this is not how we should be running our monetary systems. And then the last two minutes, they're like, we need to transition to a new monetary system. Cryptocurrencies uh, are probably the future. And they essentially conceded that CBDCs, like the governments will figure out how to implement a CBDC that we transition to. And I just found it extremely contradictory that they had that hour-long conversation where they both came to the conclusion that central banks and governments are messing up and mismanaging these systems, yet they're going to create the solution that we move to that, that fixes their previous mismanagement. Yeah. The classical liberal libertarian no-coiners are the biggest enigma of them all, I think. Um, we have enough, you know, <laughs> uh, things to deal with and uh, ideologies to dispute with, you know, in between libertarian circles ourselves. But the fact that you cannot look at a completely anarchic, uh, exogenous currency that the security is built within itself outside of uh, anything that the system that, you know, the institutions that, you know, we say most of the time they screw up and we need to change anyway. The fact that you cannot see that is a good thing. It starts, first of all, I just don't even waste my time too much with those people. That's my first response. Regarding CBDCs, I mean, just very quickly, because a few things still, I think, back to the uh, geopolitical stuff that I wanted to mention as well. But um, when you were talking about like, what's another way that we can solve this and like keep the spark of liberty going. Uh, the back to the CBDCs quickly though, the, um, I started on your show. I think it was the first time I came on your show. It's 2018. I always tell you I should write this stuff down, but I don't. <laughs> that uh, stable coins were going to be the low hanging fruit. And that was going to be the thing that they were going to try to regulate first. And they were going to work better. And they were uh, CBDCs, considering how central banks, or sorry, how central governments try to roll out, you know, healthcare systems, uh, <laughs> planning of cities, things like that. You know, they usually are very, very slow, usually screw up, usually have to restart like 15 times and are always restarting. They never get it right. Right. So that was the main thesis then. Yeah, it was free real estate. I didn't like make a big bet. I didn't proclaim it to the world. But I said that in 2018. And I will continue to say that because, as I said in the presentation in Riga, you have the Bank of Japan, top four country in the world, top three economy in the world. So there are very few countries with a clear use case for CBDCs. This said that in a report two months ago. And just very, very quickly, if you think that the CBDC is going to compete with the physical cash that is out in the economy right now, you don't know the numbers. You don't know what you're talking about. Physical cash grows over 10%, doubles every seven years. Uh, population doubles every 50 years. And the physical cash rate that I just quoted, that's a blended, compounded, that's my research, very strong, like very weighted, very uh, like deep number, 10.4% globally of physical cash, all physical cash that's, current, that's printed in the last 50 years. That's rising. That 10.4% is a rising number. Population is not rising. That doubling every 50 years, right, 1.5% a year, that's declining. So how are you going to tell me that CBDCs are, first of all, going to compete with the other only the only other retail instrument that, first of all, you know, central banks, yeah, they have succeeded in monopolizing this, but they were far from a uh, 
it is true that they actually did create it. Kublai Khan created about a thousand years ago, paper money, but using paper instruments were far from like a monopoly of, of, of central banking for centuries, right? I mean, that was something that all banks were using, free banking, all the rest we've talked about. So you cannot tell me that even this paper, I'm not saying that paper is like the best thing ever. And don't get, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying this is a retail tool that they've been using for a thousand years. They've monopolized it fully for the last 50 years. Um, it's growing, at, it's doubling every seven years. And you're going to tell me that this CBDC is going to compete with that when you can't even run, you know, healthcare websites. Like there's no way, there's no way that, that it's going to go. So that first thing has got to compete with its own digital, it's its own physical cash, CBPC, as I like to say. I get, I, I see 50 email or 50 uh, articles a day on CBDC. No one, except for myself, apparently writes uh, anything about CBPC, the stock of CBPC. So it's massive. It's huge they're going to have a very, very hard time even competing with that market of retail cash, which they issue today. Second thing, of course, as you said, is banks are going to hate it. First thing, central bank exists for the state, obviously, to fill that deficit, as we talked about, printing. But the second thing is the banking system itself, bailout, uh, all the rest, stimulus. They, uh, they love to support their banking friends. Banks love to support the central banks. There's just no way that central banks would support it if, if their own, that's the only other, if they're not going to get it from the, the, the addressable market of a CBDC, if they're not going to get it from physical currency, the only other place to look is bank deposits. And if you're not going to get it from bank deposits, or sorry, sorry, if, uh, if you're going to have to drain bank deposits, that by default makes banks less profitable, less lending, less interest, all the rest. It's very, very basic. And that's in all the papers. It's not like anything I'm even coming up with. That's in all the papers as the risk, the main risks to CBDCs. And then the Bank of Japan, of course, just said that there's very little use case for it. So I, I see no, I just see no, no progress coming from CBDCs. Um, I was talking with, uh, with uh, Drew from, uh, was it Citadel? What's his mining? Uh, Cathedra. Cathedra. Yeah, sorry. Um, great dude, been on your show, right? He was in Riga and he was thinking how maybe they would try to do airdrops of CBDCs for energy subsidies. Could happen, could happen, totally. But again, even if that's an, imagine, go back to what we're talking about here. If, if it, you're talking about an instrument that is going to reside either in a commercial banking app, then it's just a bank deposit. It doesn't, you can call it anything you want. It's just, there's nothing different than printing money and putting bank reserves in a bank and then banks issue and manage fiduciary media on behalf of the people. It's still centralized, regulated, not that great, Bitcoin much better. Um, if it sits in a CBDC app, then it is actually a CBDC. You know, it's kind of like, of course, you're not going to control the keys or anything, but you're actually going to have digital cash that's there. It's nowhere else. Um, it would be like physical cash. But that's, there's just, I see no way that any of the major countries, except China, which doesn't care about profit and is communist, but even then, uh, I see conflicting reports coming out there about the progress of that in China. Uh, there's no way that uh, the central banks themselves can show that they're competent in managing a retail instrument. You know, any centralized government authority is competent in managing anything that's public facing, you know, that doesn't face their cronies and <laughs> backdoor lobbyists you know, where they can go out and, and deal with it. So. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. And um, oh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. It's been four years. Uh, we've been hearing about CBDCs. Stable coins, you know, if you want to go stable coin route, buy a stable coin, use it, pay $10 transaction fee and 
come back to Bitcoin at some point, just hold your base money and then start transacting on Lightning or Fetty or whatever. But um, it's just, there's no, stable coins are much more efficient if from that side. I mean, like let, let Tether, let Coinbase manage uh, the reserve of assets. And by the way, you're not going to have any stable coins in any other currency besides the dollar because all other currencies are, well, as of right now, the euros, as you mentioned, is changing. But I think still the Swissy is negative. All the other currencies are negative. So as far as their main base rates, so you can't even really make a stablecoin project functional uh, in other currencies besides the dollar, because the dollar is the only currency where you can actually issue the media that is a stablecoin. Take the money, take the other actual money, whether you get it from a bank deposit or whatever, from your investors in that stablecoin, invest that into a, an asset that pays interest, i.e. treasury bonds, typically what they invest in, right? Not always, but typically. Uh, and take the spread, like regular banking. This is stablecoin is just the definition of regular banking that you know is not regulated by. It's a, it's a combination of a euro dollar because it's outside of the Federal Reserve System, but it's just banking, and uh, you're using a currency that pays that pays an interest rate. So stablecoins are working, and they work better than a CBDC. But a CBDC is just there's no economic model for a CBDC. And you know, ask India about digit. You know, when they cut out that uh, money supply in end of 2016, they cut out uh, those two notes. Five hundred dollar rupee and or the five hundred yep. rupee note and above. Yep. It was like the 200 and 500 priced with a new 500, new thousand, something like that, or whatever it was. Uh, the uh, black, black money and digitization, more digitization were the, literally the stated goals of that. And now they're over 3x higher in their physical currency cash. So physical currency, they're not getting away from anytime soon. People actually do need it. And it's part of many low income business models. You can talk all you want about uh dark money and tax evasion and all the rest, but people literally need it cash right now to, to feed their families. And Bitcoin, of course, is going to fill that void. Eventually, Bitcoin is the same type of cash. It's base money. And it's going to be used digitally. No way. A CBDC is going to be like different key management. If it's even key, man, it's just going to be, it's just going to be nonsense. We know this. We know that it's nonsense. 50 articles a day on it. It's insane. Bank of Japan already tells you that, tells you that there's no use case for CBDC. Yeah. My right. Yeah, that was like the big, uh, really the jarring point of your presentation with the CBDCs particular. You, know, you had the um, the Google searches for papers on CBDCs working and then um, for not working. You couldn't even yeah. find the Bank of Japan one. Um, yeah. It's weird. Why, yeah. why is this a big meme right now? And that's actually another interesting theory that's been floating around. Tell me. Is that like the Goldman Sachs of the world and Jerome Powell... Um, aligning more with them than say the uh, the Davos class, um, they're seeing uh, this meme for CBDCs come out of that particular organization and this central planning of energy markets and food markets and pod life. And that uh, one of the theories is that Jerome Powell, um, uh, being advised by like the Goldman Sachs of the world, is driving these rates up to sort of throw a wrench in the plan of, of the Davos class to really drive home that um, what they're trying to do is, is not good for humanity. Um, Tom Wongo from the uh, Goats, Guns, and Gold podcast. Oh, yeah, that. I've heard of that. I've never, uh, never really followed it. He's saying that Jerome Powell is going against this uh, cabal, that's what he's saying? Yeah, that's, yeah. His, that's his theory. Well, and, and look, dollar is, as everybody says, right, the best looking horse in the glue factory. It's always 
been known that way. And like, it's, it is a store of value. They still have not gone negative. Good for them for not doing that. All the other big governments in the world have done that Japan for 30 years now. So yeah, and Swiss is still negative, by the way. So the Swiss franc is negative. Who's, why would you have a Swiss, uh, even a Swiss stable coin? Because it's negative. Um, like the fact that, you know, you're going to make your banking system even less competitive by withdrawing deposits to put into a digital 0% CBD, CBDC coin. It's even more insane than that. So uh, that's interesting. That uh, I mean, yeah, the, the U.S. stands alone in many ways. And uh, no matter what you want to say about any level of government, still the U.S. support uh, for Ukraine and liberty in that respect is still huge, just to bring it back to that. So, look, America, we're always we're always pushing the envelope. I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be an American here in Europe and always like people thought I would be like more liberal, meaning socially liberal and stuff when I came to Europe. And uh, I still remember those conversations the other days. I'm like, no, pretty much gone. Uh, I mean, a bit more libertarian. But, you know, in those days, you'd say like uh, fiscally fiscally conservative, right? Socially liberal, fiscally conservative. And, um, and that was the case. I mean, we're still, we're still winning overall in our policies and we're doing uh, pretty well. Again, I'm not talking about all the bad policies and stuff. I'm just saying like, we just do things quickly and you just get done with it, right? Like um, as bad as some of this SJW stuff is and people like uh, Sam Harris, I think get the point on some of that and the arguments that they have with like Jordan Peterson and, uh, and uh, some of these other guys I'm blanking from the intellectual dark web. All Brett Weinstein. And yeah, all these guys, whatever. And he's, he's, he's a milkshake of Bitcoin theory himself. Brett, uh, not well, Brett Weinstein, but his brother, Eric, his brother, his brother, Eric. Eric brother. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't quite. Gauge doesn't theory. Quite it. It's going to be like a gauge <laughs> theory thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've read it, man. I've read gauge theory. I still don't even understand what it's, yeah, no, it's to say, but uh you described on a Rogo once. Uh, still happy no to be idea. schooled on that, but I'm pretty much going to stick to the point that you cannot calculate a basket of prices because it's completely arbitrary. Arbitrary doesn't matter how you want to do it. You cannot, cannot calculate it. Everything is always, as Misi said, ordinal with money. You can only do it in one direction. Um, it's just nonsense. I, I just don't think that you can ever find a way to accurately measure CPI. There's even like multiple measures of CPI within the government itself in the United States. So again, conflicting views, lots of vectors, all that stuff. Um, God, I lost my train of thought. I was going with that. Well, I was just going to say oh, like, just, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. With the basket of goods, I mean, just from pure information theory perspective, like information, you'll, you'll never be able to collect it quickly enough and adjust everything on the go. Like, no. You have no and idea. You can't, you can't standardize for the, the main benefits, all the benefits that the internet and the World Wide Web has given us since 1995 versus every analog delivery of the good beforehand, right? I mean, there's just, there's so many things that come into the picture every year. And you're going to, you know, even if you try to like, okay, we're just going to look at like eggs and oil and gold or something. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't work that way. Like, you know, your healthcare costs are different than my healthcare costs and your education costs for your kids are different than mine. And there's just no way. And, and it's still back to that point in, uh, in Brooklyn, one of the New York Fed uh, governors was talking and like just a couple of years after the financial crisis, said, oh, look, you know, CPI is actually not that high. You know, you have to look at the price of iPads and everything. And the one, one heckler from the crowd was like, you know, I can't, 
need an iPad, mate. And it's just like, <laughs> it's the same thing again and again and again. It's just, it's, it's obvious. And by the way, we all should know those that are classical liberals, right? We, 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 the economy does always lower costs. Right? We, we do live better than we lived in medieval times, no matter where we are in the world, right? Got better healthcare, better education. Doesn't talk, take like a week for us to, you know, hunt, kill, uh, cure and store our food. You know, we can go in, in a matter of minutes, get some tasty yeah. breakfast and coffee. So it's just, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're living way better. We always do. It's just a question of how much of that largesse, that malinvestment that we talked about, that $8 trillion of spending. <laughs> and this is part of their, you know, uh, this is, this is part of that, that racket that they're running. How much of that we're just going to let, uh, you know, take off. And of course, so, obviously Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is a curb on that. Yeah. I mean, that's unfortunately one of the biggest tools that the state has as an argument. It's like, look, you're living better than anybody 200 years ago, which is inarguably true, but it's like, it's in spite of everything they're doing. That's what they're able to sort exactly. of ride this wave exactly. of, um, technologically driven deflation and say, Hey, we did this. And it's like, no, and we did this in spite of you. And that's where I think a lot of people get caught up mentally as they see like, Oh, I have an iPhone. I have an iPad. I, the Teslas exist. Um, it, like you said, we can package and ship food better than anybody. I can go on Amazon and get something here in six hours. Like, of course things are better, but like, imagine how much better they could be if, uh, we didn't have to do all of this in spite of a government printing and misallocating trillions of dollars year in and year out. Precisely, precisely, precisely. And I, I really do think the U.S. is uh, is pretty strong in that. Just always leading the way. And like, I remember what I was going to say about the SJW stuff. Like, there's a lot of crazy stuff, and I really do agree with like Rogan talking about. I mean, we talking about like sports and uh, like the trans issue, and like just not to get too deep in the social weeds here. But I mean, you know, what's a, man what's a woman like when you're even talking about like competition you can't even get that straight like it's insane i mean it's just insane having men fight with women or women fight with men and rogan's obviously making that point but okay let's leave those harder course sjw ideas aside even in the last like 10 years i know this was like a decades debate in the united states i mean obviously more than decades it's forever but uh the gay marriage uh law like I think it took, it, when it came up, it took like a, just a matter of years during the Obama administration to pass and be done. And we got, okay, gay marriage is, is legal. Of course, our hardcore libertarian values would tell us that we don't want the government involved at all versus, you know, in marriage. Let that be an issue for, you know, the church or whatever, how you want to do it. I mean, don't, don't tax me differently if I'm married or uh, straight or gay or if I have one kid or two kid, kids. Like, you know, why, why, why would that matter? <laughs> if you want to go really hardcore on the principles. But look, I mean, the U.S. is is strong as far as like leading the way with, with a lot of social issues. I know that that's a, like, it gets really hardcore with that SJW stuff that nowadays and from what I follow from us podcast. Um, but, uh, I still think we're going to lead the way in the right direction with, with a lot of those social issues as well. Yeah. The SJW stuff too. There is shout out libs of TikTok. Just, it's hilarious that she gets picked on for just simply resharing um, these crazy mentally ill people, um, talking about how they're trying to, uh, essentially, uh, mind warp our children 
And I, I do think there is a a quiet uprising of parents, particularly who are being like, all right, this is too far. Like you're not you're not gonna try to convince my son that he's a girl and not tell me about it. Like there's whether you're and this is even in my circle of my extended family and friend groups from Philadelphia, which is an extremely liberal city. And they, a lot of the people um, in my immediate network are extremely liberal, but even them are like, mm. all right, don't fuck with my kids. Um, and so. Yeah. You're not putting tutus on my boy at, you know, five years old and, you know, just proclaiming that this is like completely normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the whole pronouns thing. I mean, it's, Again, this goes back to Yuri yeah. Bezmanov. Like, you just confuse yeah. the fuck out of people. Yeah, know. that's a problem. That's a problem, all that stuff. And I absolutely would say I'm on the side of someone like Jordan Peterson there when it comes to all just the insane uh, route that SJW and the takeover of, like, liberal academia and all that stuff. And uh, Again, I, I think we can, we can keep all those things aligned with, like, these classical liberal ideas. Um liberal values like we'll sort shit out the government has way too much control over this stuff it shouldn't matter it really shouldn't matter you know any color any race any sex um we should all be treated the same by the government if you're going to have a government the fact that you discriminate the government is precisely the institution that is doing the discrimination whether it's for tax or for other reasons is precisely the problem and i think that probably it probably will change. It, ha it just has to change. There's no way that you can keep going down that path and be successful society. Yeah, it's collapsing under the weight of its own insanity, um, which is good. But there's less, obviously going to be chaos there. But yeah, and Eastern Europe is rising. I've said this on your show as well. Like, look, the skeleton key. The look, this is okay. It's obvious, right? Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe. It's 99% white. Okay, it just is. Uh, uh, the literally you could have three Americans play on your Euro league basketball teams. That was the max. That would be like the only black people in some of these Eastern European countries. <laughs> right? Like it's, these are white societies. Uh, it just happens to be that way. It also happens to be that way, by the way, because of the Soviet union, because the Soviet union was a closed society, you could not leave the Soviet union, the Berlin wall, right? You could not leave these closed, awful societies. And the skeleton key for all of this SJW race-based economic bullshit that the U.S. liberal elites are spouting, the skeleton key lies in Eastern Europe. We are doing better than ever as free societies than we ever did under the Soviet Union. And we were all white during the Soviet Union. We're all white now. Nothing has changed from our whiteness, from our race. The only thing that's changed is our economic system in place our social and state system and apparatus in place we had the soviet union fucking awful i can't believe anyone would even defend putin trying to bring it back bring back uh the great you know russian russian bear of uh of the of the east and all the soviet nonsense that they you know red soviet flags that are out there all right we had all that it was awful we were generations behind the united states which is very mixed uh, racially society, we were all white. We were all white in Eastern Europe. All right. It's just flat out. We were all white. So this, you cannot say that it's race-based problems 
for people that are behind economically in the, in the United States. You just cannot say that because we were all white and we were generations behind you. And now we're not. And now we're not. The only thing that changed is we're not in the Soviet Union anymore. That's the only thing that changed. Our race didn't change. We didn't become more SJW, you know, whatever. You don't have to bring up SJW at that point, right? It's just, so it, it's just the skeleton key is here in Eastern Europe. <laughs> and this is why we are fucking so strong right now and rising is because like, like we're not going to go back. We're never going back to that. We know how bad it was. It was a state controlled system. We're never, ever going back. That's why I'm so relieved of the resolve that's happening. I'm happy that Sweden and Finland are joining NATO. You can see that it wasn't a problem, right? Again, I don't want to mix things. I know people get triggered by the word NATO and perhaps some of your listeners as well, but look, people are just keep it to the economic. People are really yeah. shaking their keep fists it, at the sky right keep now. It to the, keep it to the economic stuff. And you can see that um, we don't want it. We don't want it. None of us want to be oppressed. We want freedom. It's fine to help out your neighbor for freedom. It's sad that sometimes a big, large government will have to do that. But you know what? Big, large governments forgot about us 50 years ago. And we're not, we are not letting that happen to ourselves again. So I'm, I have huge faith now in like the human spirit and freedom, liberty, all that in Eastern Europe. I think it's really, really strong. It's really good. The only people that are shouting Nazi and bullshit and all this, like just, you know, just trying, you know, just pulling their hair out are the Russian propagandists. Russian, Russia has no free media at all. They haven't since 2000 when Putin came in. He took Boris Berezovsky's channel, in, or sorry, Gusinski's channel in 2000. Boris Berezovsky's channel, both of these oligarchs got him into power in 2001. They haven't had free media for 22 years. So look, they're the only people that have to reconcile with their own boogeymen and skeletons in the closet from Bolshevism, but none of us do. We were running fast away from it. So I'm, I'm super actually... Point is, I'm super encouraged from all of these things. This is the world that I'm living in where I'm talking to you from right now. Super encouraged from these things, encouraged for Bitcoin uh, and whatever. I get on these rants, so. No, I love your rants. And we don't have to harp on the SJW thing, but I do want to wrap it up with like, that's the yeah, go mo for it. most confusing, <laughs> like, because I really like the way you articulate it. Like, it's just a pure economic system that, is the problem. And that's <clears throat> the one thing that's extremely dismaying in the United States today is that you have these uh, movements, social justice warrior movements, and this conversation, this framing of the conversation, more importantly, of it's us versus them. Uh, it's the MAGA bros versus Antifa, whatever it may be. And, and they all, both sides think the other is... Uh, dr the driving force behind their strife and mm. at the end of the day it's the state and the economic yep. apparatus that it, it has erected slowly but surely over the last century and the people in control of the state again it doesn't matter if it's a republican or a democrat in office at any given point in time uh, over um the long arch of history here in the United States over the last five decades, like the state again is filled with a bunch of bureaucrats at the end of the day. It's an administrative state that doesn't really care who's in power at any given point in time. They just erect the, this frame from which they force the plebs to argue with it. And trying to, the plebs need to break out of <laughs> that frame and realize it's the people creating that frame who are driving the strife that you feel in your life. It's not your neighbor down the street who voted for Trump or, um, or, or your neighbor down the street who um, thinks that 
we should have universal health care. It's the the state ruining um, the the economic apparatus from which we operate within. And hundred percent, hundred percent. For me, it's very simple. Like I'm again, I'm I'm more on probably Ukraine Twitter than I am on Bitcoin Twitter these days. Uh, just it's it's close to where I am. Whatever. You don't have to like it. You don't have to deal with it. You don't have to listen to me. But uh, I am. I'm actually so encouraged by the result that I see there. Uh, and I think that we all can take comfort in that. I wonder though, from your side again, because we talk about this, we dance around it sometimes, uh, you know, being where you are, the Texas libertarian crowd. And I know that you're very open to all ideas and you push back on all ideas, which is great. But we were talking in the bar. We didn't get too deep into it, but I don't want to put you on the spot. But you, you were talking about, again, let's just bring it back to the pure war liberty. Uh, like to me, this is the big issue, right? I, even though... All the stuff you said is 100% spot on to me. Like these are just fly on elephant ass problems for what the U.S. is dealing. You know, the, the U.S. is complaining about compared to what we're dealing with right here in Eastern Europe. So, did you have any conversations about that in Riga? Did you? I thought you alluded to it at the bar when I was speaking to you a little bit that maybe you had talked to some people and heard some interesting stories, maybe about about the war there and about like what the Ukrainians are fighting for. And cause obviously all the lad things are going, I'd like to fight and support and everything else. Yeah. I mean, no. no, I definitely got the Eastern European perspective on it. And yeah, again, I'll just go back to like what I have been saying with our conversation. It's like, it's all fucked. Like I, I do think, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all just incredibly <laughs> fucked. But again, like we're just talking about economic solutions to this problem. Like I really wish yeah. that fucking Germany and the rest of Europe didn't fuck up their energy policy because they shifted leverage in the Putin's hands. So like, yes, yeah. Russia, Putin specifically is a kleptocratic dictator who's trying to um, brute force his ideology on that part of the world. And uh, if he is successful in that, we'll try to move outwardly there. And it's like... I think there. I don't think. I think this war can drag out. I, I don't want Ukraine to turn into Iraq. I don't want it to turn into Syria. I don't want it to turn into Libya. And if we continue, my view is that if we continue going down this path, the West continues going down this path of just arming and um, escalating, that it's not going to end well for anybody. Uh, I do think there should be uh, a greater drive for diplomacy particularly from Western countries saying, hey, all right, let's figure this out. Um, we'll buy your fucking gas. Let's take the, the Russian region that you're claiming to be protecting. Take that. That's it. Um, we'll take your gas. But in the meantime, well, that's the thing. Like you have to follow it up with action in Europe. They have to spin up nuclear power plants. They have to drill for natural gas um, uh, in UK. They have to drill natural gas in Cyprus. They have to build reliable infrastructure and create like an economic um, apparatus that uh, the, the increases chances for peace because it reduces the leverage that Putin has. Um, that's my take. Again, it's obviously very messy. And again, it sucks. It's just fucked up all around. And again, I don't want Ukraine to turn into the next Iraq, Libya, Syria, and everything that I'm seeing from my perspective over here in Texas seems to be pointing in that direction where everybody is dick measuring and refuses to 
bite the bullet and try to sit at the table for some diplomacy. Yeah. Well, probably mostly going to have to agree to disagree on that one. Cause it's, uh, yeah. it's different views over here. And I mean, Ukrainians themselves, 90 plus 90%, you know, still want to get everything back. It's been going on for eight years, the war and all the rest. And, but that's, that's, uh, what it, I, I, it's what, like live to what, fight what, another what is, day is my perspective. Like, sure. What is a hundred percent correct is Europe just pussyfooted to Putin all the time and just enjoyed the cheap gas that he was providing. Right. And that was, uh, that was a problem. And the, uh, if you look at politically, I, I said it on Peter's show as well. Like if you don't follow Tomas Ilves, who's the former president of Estonia, American Estonian, he is just ruthless showing that like he was president when Ukraine was invaded in 2014 as president of Estonia. And he was president early on in that as well, like during a lot of the Obama administration, whatever. Um, he would, as he says all the time, like it's very rare where you get like a high level leader in a, in a, in a country in Eastern Europe, they just put it out on the table and tell you exactly as it is. And oh, this, this also brings back another point about, uh, breaking up the u.s economy which is too big and we can talk about that in a second if if you don't if you can keep going but um the what he is saying is like basically for years they were we we all said this we have been west splained into saying what is good for us in eastern europe we need all this you know peace prosperity all the rest yada 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 when really what was happening was it was backwards deals with corrupt crooked schroeder type politicians dealing with the kremlin and Kremlin, that you're dealing with a state that has no respect for human rights, private property, liberty, all the rest. You have to just look at the people that are in opposition, like Navalny. He's in a prison in Siberia. You have to look at, there's more political prisoners than there has ever been in the Soviet Union right now in Russia. And you have to look at, uh, you have to look at people like Vladimir Karamorzo, who is a more intellectual opposition. He's now in jail as well. Unfortunately, went back, which I would... You know, he's just got balls to do it. He went back uh, when the I war mean, started. He got arrested. He's been poisoned twice. And these are the types of people that is, they, these are, this is the opposition of Russia. These are the people that you want to, you know, that they're themselves trying to talk to Russia. Look, it's all up to the Russians. They're Russians. They're the ones that fucking fell for this Bolshevist bullshit. They're, we have been dealing with this for 100 years. Because of them, they fell for it. They thought it was a better way to rebuild a society after an empire, a monarchy, as you say, and we have all these, not as you say, sorry, as, as libertarians say, it's, you know, they, some libertarians think monarchies are the way to go because of Hans Hermann Hoppe. I'm quite skeptical <laughs> about that. Although I know, I know the ideas of if it really came down to like city states and private monarchies, it might be interesting, but still this goes back to David Friedman and the hard problem. You don't quite know what would happen in those situations. Like during, you know, first of all, we got nukes to contend with. That's Peter Todd's point, which I do agree with. Like we've already fucked ourselves. No one wanted nukes. Governments created nukes. Now we have nukes. We have to deal with nukes. That's the problem. And um, I, I don't have a good answer for that either. Ukraine gave up their nukes in 1994 with the Budapest Memorandum. That was another agreement, peace deal, whatever. Like Valenza, the former Solidarity, uh, you know, first president of Poland post-communism. Uh, always said Russians had a pen in one hand and a hand grenade in the other. I mean, it's just, they're known for this. They never honor any agreement. This is what they do. They just fuck you up. And this, this, they've done this for a hundred years. So like, you just never going to convince any of this. And to hear it from someone like Tomas Ilves, 
who can speak very clear, like he's, he's native English speaker. All right. He's like me. I mean, he's, he speaks Estonian as well, but raised Estonian in the U S went to Columbia, all the rest took on Paul Krugman on Twitter. Great dude. Great fucking dude. Absolute follow. If you haven't followed him, he's funny. And he's just to the bone. He's going to say, look, this is bullshit. Uh, none of our interests have been heated to in, in this European union, which is supposed to be equal among states. Um, and now you're paying the price. You are paying the price, Germany and, and France and all the rest for dealing with this. Like Macron is the one that telling, you know, Macron is saying like, I want to talk to Putin, talk to Putin, talk to Putin. And he, he thought he was going to do a deal on February, you know, 22nd or tw sorry, 20, uh, 20th, 18th of February. Thought he was going to have a Russia summit, a Putin summit and all the rest. Putin can give a fuck. I mean, he just invaded. He just invaded. Like, this is just what they're going to do. So there's a time for talking, but the Russians have done that for 30 years. We're never going back there. We're not going back to the Soviet Union, man. You have to understand from I agree our position, yeah. we are never going back. And like, you let them in, they just don't follow the rules. Like, you let them in, they'll fucking try to kill their dissidents that defect to your country with plutonium, plutonium or Novichok. Like illegal substances, like if Geneva Convention fucking means anything anymore. Like there are illegal substances that Russia still produces. I'm not saying the U.S. doesn't produce. It's in secret. They yeah, do. so that's, this is where I always <laughs> get hung up on. It's like I fucking hate my government too. And like you talk about like Bolshevik, yeah. like political, like taking out your political enemies. It's literally happening in the United States right now. The FBI is so completely go. weaponized or – arresting yeah. people who were in Trump's administration. It's like, we don't let me go have to our this. own house in order. It's like, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me go to this. This is what you, you do need to get your house in order. I, I agree with that. And I would, as a libertarian, as a classical liberal, totally support the idea of like, as, as anyone should, right. Of, you know, Federalist Papers, Jefferson, uh, Madison, secession, all the rest. Uh, that probably is the only way. If you're talking about, if you're talking about a political, Satoshi said, Kurtabri, Jesus, I mean, it's hard right now. Satoshi said cryptography can't solve all of your political problems. I agree, right? It's true. It's true. So if you want to talk about another solution to solve it, it seems to be, to me, the, the, the one book I wanted to bring up earlier is Donald Livingston, uh, Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century. Have you heard of this? No. Donald Livingston. Very good book. Recommend it. Donald Livingston, Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century. And uh, it's just like, his main point is like, look at Switzerland. They follow the American model. They stuck to the American model. Federalism, different cantons. It's a total academic question who the president of Switzerland is. No one cares. No one even knows. I don't know who the president of Switzerland is. We know Switzerland's a great place. They have four different uh, cantons or four different main regions, many different cantons, I guess, inside of that. Whatever. They have all these states. Uh, they're decentralized and it works. All right. Yeah, they probably have some Nazi gold in their coffers and they did dirty <laughs> deals and they're still doing dirty deals with... Uh, the Russians, which is a problem. But uh, as far as the state, that up, the, the most interesting thing I hear about when I talk to Swiss is that they appreciate their government because you'd never get too many extremes on either side. If you got like some of the nut jobs on the left, the, the, the normal people in the middle are going to correct that. N nut jobs on the right, the normal people in the middle will correct it. And they just correct it every time. The Overton window never really shifts as far as I know, in Switzerland. And they're armed. Everybody is armed in Switzerland. You know, there's different cultures. Yeah, I mean, there's some things are mandatory as far as like training or you know, certain levels of conscription. I'm not quite sure. But in Switzerland, yeah, it's all, it's all different. But size does matter, right? And not in the special movies <laughs> way. Size, size does matter as far as governing a nation. And I completely agree with you. Like, absolutely within the libertarian ideal to rethink things. It's very difficult right now for the U.S. from that perspective. 
Um, but I don't know, man. Maybe it's maybe I'm just trying to give your listeners a little bit more entertaining alternative thoughts there because like look, we can, rob, we can rail we can rail on the US federal government all day and I just told you the fucking numbers like of their seniorage and their and their tax and spend. It's it's insane. It's the largest in the world, multiples, multiples, multiples higher than the largest companies in the world they make in one year. You know, six trillion or five trillion dollars in, in tax receipts. It's insane. So um that's 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 a challenge. But rethink, you know, if you it, like, if you looked at the seats in all of the original thirteen colonies, and you standardize it for the seats today, you need to have like I don't know x many thousand of seats, right? So we don't have that. And if you go the other way, if you look at the, um, if you look at the, no, whatever, I can't think of it on the fly. But if you if you go the other way, basically, and you think of uh, today's rep, yeah, today's representation. Um, based on a percentage, right, of our rep, rep, representatives per capita in the House, 435 or whatever it is, right? Uh, you would have, like, no representatives in, like, half the states. If you standardized that proportion back then, right, the amount of representatives, you would have, like, one or two representatives in each state uh, as opposed to the 50 or 60 or however many it was back in the day. So, like, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all out of whack. You have to be small to manage politically effectively and defense is a hard problem man. it is a hard problem i think it's very interesting to like to follow someone like david freeman look at his debates talk about how that's another thing he, he always said that his father which again is a great champion for liberty i know we don't like his monetary policy and all the all that with milton friedman but uh i love the way that he said it he said that uh david friedman you know milton friedman's son the anarchist he he believes that Anarcho-capitalism will probably work, but it might not. And he said his father believed that anarcho-capitalism probably wouldn't work, but maybe it could, right? So it's like a little bit of a shift there from generation, like just a, just a shift as far as it would probably work or probably not. No one knows for sure. We're way, way far from that like philosophical idea, but I, I wouldn't get too hung up on the extremes because we're just so far from that in 2022, man. We got, you know, I'm my neck of the woods, we got people being deported, you know, literally World War II style deportations to Russia, children being deported, thousands of them, tens of thousands, uh, millions of refugees. And it's just, uh, that's what we're dealing with. So I, you know, yes, you do need to get your house in order back in the States. I agree with that hundred percent, but the hard, pro the hard problem really is sort of sharpening the blade and making people understand like, okay, this is actually important for the government to do. This is not so important. This is a complete waste of time. This is an infringement on your liberty, right? Like that's, that's obviously the hard problem for the United States because it's just too big. Yeah. Well, and then the hard problem for Europe and most of the world is to recognize that. How could you, I, I think the best path toward these small anarcho-capitalist states is arming everybody. And that's just a conversation that's unapproachable in many yeah. parts of the world. And nukes as well, I mean, are a huge issue. Like Ukraine is the, again, bellwether uh, skeleton key example of why uh, diplomatic, talks, nukes. <laughs> diplomatic talks specifically with Russia will never work because um, they gave up their nukes and you see what happens. Yeah, and again, it goes back to shifting leverage. Uh, are these big governments willing to, to go 
to war with citizens of their country or other countries if they're able to be war uh, armed. Um, I mean, again, controversial even here in the United States, but an AR in every home I think would do a lot to uh, to stop a lot of these problems. I don't know, man. I'm not gonna go there. It's uh, I don't I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to like the uh, Switzerland is armed. Switzerland is armed. I don't think they have an AR in every home, but uh, yeah, Switzerland the Swiss, is they armed. need to keep like they can only use like hunting rifles and they keep them in like lock. No, boxes. they have they have also they have safes. Yeah, they have lock boxes. Correct, but yeah, um, at least at least people you know that the house is protected and you know that like there's a government mandate behind some of the stuff and look at it's like that way in Estonia and Finland as well. There's like mandatory. Like, I'm not I'm not for this. I'm not saying this is a solution, but it's just again, a small country has to do things a little bit differently. It's like you have to understand security is not free, right? It's like that's why I totally sympathize with people that say, you know, okay, maybe Canadians, you're not really understanding your, your security because uh, you know you're just living peacefully because the United States is just arming the hell out of everything around you. We know you're we're not going to invade uh, Canada, so like you know, you know, you might want to pay a little bit more to the NATO budget. Or the same thing with. Uh, with the Western countries and NATO and same, and Trump was correct on that, right? A lot of Western countries weren't paying their quote fair share, which is 2% of the GDP target. All of us Eastern countries were doing it because we understood and Estonia, Finland, they have these like year long, I don't know, reservist conscription periods where you got to learn shit. You got to go out, you got to serve. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I don't, I don't like the idea of having to serve your government, but it exists in South Korea as well. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah it does. So, and also smaller states are bad. Like, this is why it's, in, it's extremely informative. Like, if you really want to know, just follow. If you want to know what's going on with Ukraine, follow Tomas Ilz. He's the former president of Estonia. It's a small state, but he was at the table with every big state. And he had to listen to all the bullshit from every big state, all right, in NATO, in the European Union, whatever. But the benefit of having a small state, which all of us are pretty small states in Eastern Europe, um, the benefit is you can really you know, have ear to the ground, hear what's going on. And, and you do have more of a representation. You can see what's going on. So obviously we don't have that. I mean, with, with the U.S., I mean, obviously with Biden, if you want to try to get like something, something ear to the ground with Biden, uh, it's not going to come in that form. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, careful putting your ear to the, the ground with Biden. He might come down and try to, try to lick it. Correct. Um, exactly. I was going to go actually, precisely in that direction but i'm glad yeah. you did the uh well we do come here to talk <laughs> about the monetary base update and we've got like 25 minutes left before i had to roll here yeah, we had a uh, no man whatever you want to well about. i think it was an interesting update um just for the pure fact that this is the first time we've uh we've had the the base fall i think since we've um since we've been doing these shows yeah, it might have fallen. It might have slipped one or two spots in early, very, very early years. But um, yeah, it's yeah. true. It was, uh, it slipped a few slots. And uh, obviously, it's a combination of things. Bitcoin price has fallen, but everything has fallen. People have to understand. Well, that's what that, I'm not saying Bitcoin. I'm not saying Bitcoin particularly. I mean, just the global monetary yeah. base has gotten smaller, quarter on quarter. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, true. And that's precisely because, yeah, Wittgenstein's ruler, I'm measuring this in the dollar and, you know, Dollars just screaming compared to everything. Yeah, you else. can pull that chart up, Logan. You um, were living like a Kardashian in Europe, my friend. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on the dollar milkshake theory? Is that playing out right now? I mean, I guess, yeah. But I mean, I 
I don't know. I mean, like Sailor maybe has a better. Inter- I don't. I don't know. I, Melting ice cube. <laughs> yeah. It's it's obvious that the dollar is. I, I don't see the dollar milkshake being anything different than the best looking horse in the glue factory, which was the yeah, which was the trope for a long time. All these weak um, currencies are going to fail into the dollar. Right. It's obvious that that's the case. It's obvious that it's been the reserve currency, and at least since the end of World War One, when the pound, when the Brits fucked up their system, the pound sterling was the worldwide currency. Right after the after the peseta, the, the originally the the forget the pieces of eight, the Spanish one the Dutch and the Portuguese uh, currencies, right? But the British one was the last one just before the dollar. World War One fucked it up. They tried to revalue their gold to an insane rate. It screwed up their currency even more, and then they were just done from that point. So it was the dollar for the last 100 years. It's absolutely been the dollar. Everybody knows that. So I don't, I don't, like, I don't really think that that's anything interesting as far as, like, macro policy goes. That's why, obviously, I do this in uh, <laughs> in dollars. And by the way, there's... A couple of the sites, you know, they, they take, you know, CSV files or whatever, and they do Bitcoin as far as like M2 or M3 of other currencies, which is not comparable, right? Because that's fiduciary media, that's bank money. That's not like the basic, basic final system settlement money, like central bank money. Uh, and they'll just do it actually in Bitcoin terms, which is even more bizarre because you get numbers like 222 million Bitcoin uh, is the value of this money supply. You can't do it in Bitcoin terms. Like right now, it just doesn't make any sense. There is only 21 million Bitcoins. So why would we uh, do it that way? Only when there's that standard that starts to evolve, which by the way, it's never a fully backed standard. There's another thing that full reservist, uh, non-free banking people don't understand. There's only $5.6 trillion in existence. But we can still talk about crazy numbers. And at least even though they're insane, we can still talk about it. You know, 30 trillion in monetary base. Maybe there's 100 plus trillion. It's definitely 100 plus trillion in broad money. Who knows how many euro dollars there are in trillions. We talk about in trillions and trillions of units because we have a standard. But never as a standard meant, by the way, just side note, it's never, ever meant fully backed. Never has been in history. Uh, It's just media that's issued. It's just like stable coins doesn't matter how many units you have out there. Yeah, if, you're, if your debtor-creditor relationship with your institution is, is delinquent and is bad in organizing their, uh, receive, their own receivables, their loans, their own assets, their own investments, then you have a problem in banking. That's, that's absolutely, that's going to be the case. That was the case prior to Bitcoin. That's going to be the case post-Bitcoin. Uh, and those arguments don't even interest me at all about how Bitcoin's going to make people like invest better and do all this. It, it, it definitely will. It definitely will. But you're still going to have investments uh, outside of base money Bitcoin, which is uh, obviously only been 21 million units. So uh, anyway, it's a long roundabout uh, way of saying that it's just a standard. It doesn't have to be fully backed. Um, but right now, obviously, we have a dollar standard. So the only way to understand some of this broader money is to think about it in terms of dollar. Uh, yeah, that's it. No, it makes sense. Yep. What uh, yep. what charts do you think we should focus on this this quarter? Uh, let me pull it up on my own here. Um, I don't know. If you want to just scroll down? Uh, yeah, pull it up. Logan. Down for whatever. I'm pulling it up myself. Sorry, give me a sec. Uh, 
so it's just the same stuff. You know, we got uh, sort of a background on what base money is, why it's important, um, its final settlement of the system, all the rest. Uh, one of the things which is maybe always interesting to look at, which I didn't have too many schedules ago, too many updates ago, is number 19. Number 19, Logan. So here we have, uh, it's, a, it's probably still pretty hard to view for your... That's yeah, better than last time. Yeah. Um, I'm working. I'm trying to get a dark mode that still has my theme colors. And so I haven't quite figured that out, but that's why I go with the green. But we're working on it. Zero dollar marketing budget here. So anyway, <laughs> it's a tornado chart here. So you got the, uh, on the left, you have GDP per capita. On the right, you have base money per capita. And this is interesting just to see, like, obviously, Norway, Switzerland, Qatar, Singapore, U.S., these are the richest states per capita. Um, you know, almost $100,000 equivalent per capita of, uh, of GDP. Yeah, zoom in on Norway. And look at Norway. That's just so interesting. And this is the one, I was actually talking to someone from Norway about this, because uh, back to the CDB, CBDC discussion, uh, Norway and Sweden are actually two states that will probably give it a go with CBDCs because they have such little cash in society, but I'm still not convinced with those and I can explain why. But Norway has such a small monetary base, primarily because it has such a massive, as people know, the sovereign wealth fund. And uh, I think it's just the fact that they, they know that they have such a huge, so the sovereign wealth fund is on their asset. And as I show there- it's Yeah, they have a shit ton of assets. Yeah, $1.2 trillion. That sits on the central bank's assets. It's actually, strangely, I don't know. It could be on the treasury's balance sheet, but they put it on the central bank's balance sheet. And um, so that works out to $220,000 per capita in Norway. So it's by far like the richest thing, you know, as you can talk about as far as wealth, money, storage, um, of value uh, of a central bank. But interestingly, you know, if you look at the base money itself, it's 1500 uh, $1,500 equivalent, which is like pretty much with some of the lowest countries there. And so Nor Norway has obviously been famously a cashless society for about 15 years now. Uh, Sweden as well. <clears throat> I probably will do a chart soon regarding just their physical cash supplies. They are rising. They are rising. They were declining for years. Uh, uh, probably in the last five years, it turned and I started to rise again. So that's interesting to me. Just like India, just back to this talk about physical cash like being more important than central banks realize or treasury realizes or politicians realize. I, I still have a hard time believing that they will fully do away with physical cash, even though they really are trying in these developed nations of Norway and Sweden. But they will probably try to give it a go. If they have, again, they're not gonna, they're not gonna have, have good energy uh, reserves there, so they're probably not gonna have a need for it, like Drew said, to do a energy subsidy CBDC drop, airdrop. But uh, that is just an interesting one. Richest, you know, one of the richest countries in the world per capita, and they have basically no basic money in the system at all. But uh, they're but printing they have, Krona. They're starting to print more Krona. Yeah, yeah, they are printing. Uh, they are printing a little bit more. But still, as a as a relative, as you can see, just in dollar terms, it's so small compared to look at the next one, which is Switzerland. And of course, you get into a little bit ambiguity with money here as you still do with GDP, but with money, obviously, specifically the Swiss franc, the Swiss is like, even though it's negative, uh, because it has such demand, the interest rate's negative on it. 
um, it is cross-border, right? It's not only Swiss people that hold the Swiss franc. So, and obviously it's, it gets too strong. They even have to, like, they worry about it being too strong relative to the euro, which is just funny. Um, of course, you know, it's the old import-export argument. Uh, but the, it's, it's, it's by far and away the largest per capita. If you just assume that all the Swiss monetary base was in Switzerland, it's $90,000 per capita. So it's like a massive one. And then you got, you know, just Norway, the country that's basically the same as far as wealth goes. It's like only 1500 bucks per capita. So there's some interesting discrepancies there. It still is, if you look at all the other ones with the big base monies, you know, the US, Japan, Japan's the next largest one with almost 40,000 per capita. It still is a huge amount of uh, seniorage for the state. Um, it's still, it's just another way of looking at it. Um, but you can also see again how top heavy it is with, uh, with the largest currencies on a per capita basis compared to the smallest currencies, which have you know, maybe four to ten thousand dollars worth of GDP per capita, and like maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of base money. So um, I'm not saying it needs to be higher or lower. I'm just saying you can see, you can still see that Pareto distribution is pretty wild here. With, uh, of course, I could look at this just as gross nominal terms, or I can put it in per capita. And here I did in per capita, so it's it's quite different than the way that GDP lays out with uh, with some of the largest countries. So, so that's that's something that you can can look at and i will probably do another analysis of uh switzerland and sorry uh, sweden and norway soon because they are even though they're famously going cashless and maybe cbdc would actually work in those countries and they're rich enough to try to pull it off uh they're still printing physical cash right now they're printing more uh than they have in the last 10 years yeah so how how would you distill what this chart highlights it's like just highlights how levered up GDP is or how much GDP is dependent on the layers above M0? Yeah, it's, it tells a lot of different things. Like, so regarding your question about levered up or whatever, uh, again, there's very little base money relative to GDP. So do I think that Bitcoin is going to make those numbers like completely equal out to be the same? No, because it's just, that's not how banking works. That's not how scaling payments works, all the rest. You're still going to have fiduciary media to do all that stuff. Um, so, so I don't think that will change under Bitcoin standard, but I do think it's insightful under a dollar standard or fiat standard to see uh, the differences and they are vast, except for maybe Switzerland where it's like almost a one-to-one -one ratio. Other than that, you have many, 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 many multiples more of say GDP versus the base money that sits uh, in central bank accounts. So again, it's, it's the pendulum swinging thing. Like it, it's, you look at these things, they're insightful, but it's just trying to show that the governments are never going to be able to hit what all the economists say that they can do, right? Like put all the economy in a spreadsheet, make it work out. It's all going to be perfect. No, it's just like, if you, if you actually line up GDP, you line up base money, there's like these wacky differences. Um, yeah, it's just two metrics there. It's not, you know, you can't put, uh, it's just two metrics here to, to compare, but it's just showing that if, if the narrative is that like, they're supposed to have all these managed monetary policy to smooth out, you know, the, uh, the economy and make everything, you know, work nicely. It seems to me that 
you know, I'm having a hard time understanding why, say, Switzerland has a huge one. Norway has a, a, such a little one as far as monetary base goes. And, you know, Japan is like uh, also kind of a one-to-one -one ratio like Switzerland is. So, like, is that supposed to be the standard? Uh, the United States has also like a much lower ratio. It's about $16,000 worth of base money in the United States for, what is it, $76,000 per capita. All right. So, it's a ratio of what, like close to, you know, over five. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, again, it, it's, it's just, to me, it's just insightful to put it all out to see the differences. Why would you mess around with any of these currencies? Just buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> that, They're not going to hit the mark. The pendulum's going to swing. And, uh, don't let the, yeah. don't let the bear market lull you into a, a false sense of, of security in these currencies. It's what yeah. Bitcoin bear markets do. You say, uh, yeah, it's and dead. There's another. Yeah, there's another, if you look at uh, Logan 22, another tornado chart, which I think is interesting, just again, flare it up. This has no, the left side to the right side of this tornado has no, uh, there's no relationship as far as like something you can judge. I, it's just for fun. It's looking at the native units of each monetary base versus their US dollar, you know, exchange rate equivalent Holy shit. unit. It's just for fun. Like, it's not like I'm not trying to make a, a point about like a ratio or anything else or like infer anything. So you see like Iran has uh, 6.4 quadrillion Iranian, Iranian reals in their monetary base, which is about, equivalent to about $20, $20 billion worth of, of monetary base on the, on the top end as far as like the most units. And New Zealand actually has about $50 trillion, $50 trillion Kiwi to about $30 trillion US dollars as far as a unit goes. So it's like much less units out there for uh, New Zealand than there are for Iran, but it's just kind of a fun thing. Like look at, look for your currency, wherever you are in the world, you can see how massive your monetary base is. The Vietnam is actually number two. And that's not even, they're so they're communists in, in Vietnam is right as well. Right. So they have uh 1.5 quadrillion dong best currency name out there. Vietnamese dong 1.5 trillion. That is, uh, only M zero. They're so non-transparent in their balance sheet. Like, of course, Bitcoin's better. We know because we know exactly how many Bitcoins are out there all the time. We can only take at face value what central banks report on their books. Vietnam, as well as the Bank of England, actually, is the least transparent bank. Uh, bank of England doesn't tell you your whole, their whole balance sheet. But Vietnam only tells you probably something that's equivalent to like M0, which is cash outside of bank vaults and just in circulation. It doesn't tell you the amount of reserves that banks have in the system and all the rest, but that's just, you know, it's still a massive number. So it's just interesting to look at, uh, again, compared to like very small US dollar equivalent value. And so again, you can see the four big ones, dollar, euro, yen, yuan, look at them, find your own currency. It might be interesting for you to see it. And, uh, and yeah, that's the rest, just tracking them all. So we don't have to, we don't have to go too deep in that. I'm, the the gold one that was is as fascinating. Well, twenty four. Let's uh, yeah, let's wrap up on Bitcoin's place. Where what happened? Q one to Q two this year. So it dropped. Um, Keep going. It down. dropped. Now it's number eight. Uh, in I think in Q one it was still number eight, but it was as high last year when it was screaming 
right here. It was chart. number six. So that is uh, that is not including gold and silver. Right? This chart is also not including gold and silver that you're looking at. So there again, you see it's still, it's a little bit lower now, the mid-major. It was knocking on the pounds, pound sterling's doorstep there last year when it was screaming. Uh, that's like the last mid-major currency out there was the, was the British pound sterling. Uh, you know, a trillion, a trillion sterling units are out there. Uh, and then, of course, the four top ones are, you know, there would be $200,000 plus Bitcoin to reach those, uh, to reach those levels of the monetary base. But again, those, those things can go up. Bitcoin can also go up. Those things can go down. Bitcoin can go up. It's hard to know. It's all Wittgenstein's ruler. Um, it's just a way to measure, compare the economic, legal, moral, ethical <laughs> money supply to uh, 21 million uh, Bitcoins that will be outstanding. So yeah, so, we'll see with the chart. So X gold and silver, we have the euro, the dollar, the yen, the yuan, the pound, Swiss franc, and the Indian rupee in front of us. Um, yeah. So it, f- it fell behind the Swissy and the rupee. Uh, whereas last year, about a year and a half ago, for the first time, it was ahead of the Swissy ever. And now it's behind again. So it's a nice little a- chart to show you the, to show you the, uh, show you the discrepancies there and how it changes. And it was, yeah, it was number six. Now it's number eight, just looking at fiat currencies. So based off of this snapshot, like you said, Wittgenstein's ruler, these things can change as these governments print more, um, contract their monetary supply. But let's make a bet. Uh, The British pound, as of this snapshot, Bitcoin would have to be above $66,600 to pass that. When do we pass the pound? Mm. You know, I like the world of free real estate, my friend. Not much of a, not much of a gambler actually, except on Bitcoin. So, not financial advice, obviously. But let, if I had to call it uh, inside of ten years, is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a very safe bet. Um, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. It, the thing is that they can still print so, so much more as we've seen. Uh, you know, there's just the U.S. alone, trillions and trillions every year in deficit. And the dollar is still surviving. It's still surviving. All the other currencies are collapsing, whatever, dollar milkshake, best horse in the glue factory. So I think it's going to come down to that moment where Things have to reset. Things have to change. Things have to uh, get revalued. Um, that's probably will be the moment. Well, that'll be the moment where it matches the the top four as far as passing the pound, man. What do you think? Twenty twenty four. Q three. Mm, suspense. <laughs> Q three. <laughs> I love it. Book market. Dude. I can't, I can't make predictions this way for my own chart. I just, I, this is like, I'm, I'm, I'll sell the, I'll sell the, the drugs here, but I just, I cannot make a, I can't, I can't uh, consume my own product here. I just can't. It's, it's too. I'm, I'm more of a train spotter than, uh, than, than a stock to flow to analyst. Definitely than a stock to flow analyst. <laughs> my God, we should talk about that that next time. Jesus. Yeah, let's dismantle uh, that. I'm happy yeah. I never hopped on that train. Absolutely, it needs to be dismantled. But um, the I, I much, much more prefer sort of 
spotting the train rather than placing the bet. We know the trend. We, I, I tell you about the trend as well. The trend is always your friend. Follow it till the end. That's the, the Bitcoin trend is in, insane. It's absolutely insane. It's rising. Uh, it's power ratio. Stock to flow has nothing to do with it. Um, we need to talk about that next time. Remind me because the trend is always increasing. It goes up like 45 bucks a day right now. On average, Bitcoin goes up. The trend, the trend. Bitcoin price itself only goes up all-time average, I think something like $4 a day. Uh, and now down, of course, now it's down like in 2022, it's down like $90 a day on average. So you got to look at those things, like the averages, the trend, all that rest. Uh, I need to look at the power trend to maybe to make the, that'd be my safest bet pre scientific prediction, which obviously is not scientific, but that'd be my safest bet prediction. Let me look at the trend. Let's revisit it in Q3. All right. Uh, Q3 wrap up. wraps up in, uh, in 16 days here. It'll take <laughs> you. It'll take me another month to get all the data from the central banks because they themselves are slow to publish. It. I just have to say that. And probably it'll be like only like start of November, which is insane. I know to publish Q3 and then we'll eventually hopefully hop on the phone. Uh, not long before that, but yeah, we should talk about the trend. The trend is important. The power trend. That gives a good prediction. All actually. right. In November, we're going to talk about the trend and dismantle stock to flow. Love it. It's a pleasure as always. Until then, let's just keep winning. And the world's crazy right now. It's all fucked up, but we're winning because we're here talking about solutions. Absolutely. Instead of, instead of focusing on the problems. I appreciate your, your viewpoint, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me on. Chat soon. All right. So yeah, I already said it. it's always a pleasure. Peace and love, freaks. It's a pleasure not a chore. So yeah. <laughs>